The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic, and everybody calls me Crocodile Lord. Ah. I, I don't know. I don't have a cool nickname. Yeah, it's actually a misnomer. He's actually an alligator lord. <laughs> the shapes of the noses are a little different. Uh, it is a wonderful, celebrated event. We have been doing Cancel Too Soon for four years, and every year on more or less the anniversary, we're a little late this time, uh, we like to look back at the last year of TV series that we unearthed, discovered, revisited, um, and uh, pick out the best of the best, the worst of the worst, and the weirdest of the weird. Uh, these are shows that many of which have no one to champion them, and uh, we want to take at least one more opportunity before we move on to highlight the shows that really deserve your attention for the best reasons or sometimes the worst reasons. I have nothing to add to that. You, you covered it. Yes! <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the Sunnis are uh, a wonderful, wonderful event uh, here at Cancel Too Soon. <laughs> because we get to ruminate on all of the crap we've consumed over the course of a year. And uh, when you are covering, more or less, an entire series worth of content mm. every week... You're you're gonna consume a lot of a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, especially considering uh, that we are going from all over the historical like spectrum. We're going mm. back many many decades in some cases. We're looking at shows that lasted twenty two seasons, uh, twenty two episodes, and had a ton of money behind it. We're also looking at shows that only lasted a couple of episodes and were made for about as much as you can get for a jar of spit on eBay. Who's spit? If it's Kanye's spit, that's a lot of money. No, I never said it wasn't Kanye's spit. <laughs> uh, so uh, this is a kind of an odd award show because this is an award show where people who are currently famous and uh, huge celebrities now can be nominated alongside and lose to uh, obscure actors from the 1970s. So I love this show. This is one of my favorite things that we do every year. Uh, and uh, yeah, we have a bunch of categories we're going to go through. We have one category that was voted by you, uh, the fans. And in a subsequent video on our Patreon page, we will select one of the people who voted for the best episode of our show uh, to pick a future episode of Cancelled Too Soon. Whatever you want us to review, as long as it fits our rules and we haven't done it before, a few other minor issues may arise, but nothing yet. Uh, basically, we just have to be able to find it. Uh, yeah, and the, we'll do anything you want. And the best episode of our show, that is to say, the best discussion we had. Yeah. 
the, the most interesting things we had to say about the show in question. Not mm-hmm. necessarily the best show in question. Yeah, it tells us the kind of stuff that you like us reviewing, and it helps us pick future shows for the next year. So it's an important uh, uh, category, and we can't vote for it ourselves. So really, really grateful to a ton of people voted this mm-hmm. year. So that really, really was very heartening, and thank you so much for listening to the show. And we don't want to waste your time with more preamble. Let's get to the first award. It is my, one of my favorite categories, best theme music. <laughs> TV theme songs are an underappreciated art form, if you ask me. Well, some, sometimes they don't even exist anymore. I know. Uh, they just show you the title card, and there's like a lost, and it goes mm. boom, boom, or something, and then we're just on to Somet- the show. Sometimes they count like sort of the music they play over the c- closing credits mm-hmm. as the theme music, but at that point, they, they shrink the whole screen up into the tiny corner and give you a preview of what's coming next. Uh, and and it's, by th- it's a lost art form, yeah. uh, and because commercial breaks have gotten longer and longer, mm-hmm. uh, shows have countered this by just cutting out the theme song and filling out with content. Often, yeah. And uh, we also don't include uh, shows which may have great theme songs, but have theme songs that were just pop songs that they're repurposing. Like um, mm. the, Father, so- the Father of the Pride was just Viva Las Vegas. That, that was a good one. Mm. Uh, or uh, Whiskey Cavalier was a song called, I think it's Love Me Again. Yeah. I want to know now. Great song, totally fits the show, mm. but... It's kind of a cheat. We wanted to focus on uh, music that was composed for the series, music that gets you excited for the series, music that tells you what the series is about, either just orchestrally or through fun lyrics. And uh, we had a lot of nominees this year. Uh, this is one of the few categories in which Whitney and I had a hard time agreeing on anything. Well, I had two. Uh, one uh, was just an instrumental that conveyed mood mm-hmm. of my nominees. Mm-hmm. The other two follow what I consider to be sort of the cardinal rules of writing a TV theme song, mm-hmm. where it has to be really catchy, it has to be really kind of, it has to match the tone of the show, mm-hmm. so light or dark, depending. And it has to have lyrics that explain the entire premise of the program. <laughs> Uh, the Ballad of Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch are the two best theme songs ever written for this reason. Try and deny it. There isn't a better one. No. There has never been a better one. No. I, I, mm. th- those are the two. They're catchy, mm. and once you know the song, and you will know it immediately, you know the plot of the show, and you have a connection to the show. Uh, the first nominee uh, is one of Whitney's picks. It is the only purely orchestral theme that we've mm. got. Uh, but it is uh, rousing and exciting and a very amusing counterpoint to how silly the show is. It's the theme to Wizards and Warriors. That's an adventure show, isn't it? Yeah. It, it really gets the heart pumping. It gets the blood flowing. Uh, I'm excited to watch that show. Uh, <laughs> it just sort of reeks of wonderful old world thrills. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of like Errol Flynn movies when I'm hearing that music. The show itself was a farce. It was mm-hmm. a spoof of fantasy uh, tropes. But You could take it, that theme and put it on any yeah. sword and sandal epic and it would be good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it's good. It tells you what it so, needs to do. It's, and and yeah. I th- and I think even though the show is a farce, you don't want to sort of like, let's start my sword, it's the show. Because you know, sort of, <laughs> uh, 
because that would be a little too goofy. I think you want yeah. to let, l- convey to the audience that we're going to be taking the fantasy elements of this kind of seriously. Hmm. And, and to that, an extent. That, that, well, yeah, to an the re- extent. The that, reason that, why... The theme song does do that, effectively. The, the reason why I didn't vote for this one is that I felt like it only sold the adventure drama and didn't really hint at how silly the show was going to be. Mm. And it would have been nice if they had found a way to do both. But it is a very, very rousing theme, and mm. I do like it. Uh, my next... Uh, my, my nominee uh, uh-huh. was... Uh, a show that actually is, fits into a larger universe, and that larger universe has a very familiar orchestral theme. But for the show, which is odd and eccentric and highlights unusual parts of that universe, uh, they went in a very different direction. It is Stuart Copeland's theme song, In Trouble Again, for Star Wars Droids. <laughs> Good theme song. It's a rock solid theme song. I like this theme song because it's catchy without being like a total earworm. Like it's not trying to just weasel your way into your brain. Uh-huh. And it's about being screwed. <laughs> like it's about how these protagonists, Star 2D2 and C3PO, are constantly the underdogs. And there's something that I find really. Uh, I, I really connect to about that. Mm. Um, so I like how sort of off kilter and eccentric the music is. I like how off kilter and eccentric the show is, uh, and it's the theme song that gets me excited to, to watch droids because, like, ah, oh, these poor bastards! What horrible, <laughs> horrible experience are they going to run into this week? Mm. They're in trouble again, and indeed they are. Uh, cool. All right. Well, uh, next up. Uh, we well, had, yeah. Well, my my next nominee. Yeah, your next nominee uh, is uh, well. It's a show that we came damn near close to picking for our number one because it is a show that is hosted by a celebrated musician, one of our favorite musicians in the whole world, mm-hmm. uh, and it's another show that tells you everything you need to know about the show. It's very very catchy. It is the theme to the Weird Al Show. Oh, this is a story about a guy named Al, and he lived in a sewer with his hamster pal. But the sanitation workers really didn't approve, so he packed up his accordion and had to move to a city in Ohio where he lived in a tree, and he worked in a nasal decongestant factory, and he played on the company. This uh, this song was good enough to be on a record. Yeah. You can, you can actually just download uh, this song this or is, buy the CD or, vi- or vinyl, I guess, if it's available. I don't this know. is one of, technically, I think this is uh, one of three TV theme songs that Weird Al has written. Okay. Uh, he there, One of his pieces, it was turned into a piece of music for UHF, but they did a, a spinoff of Saturday Night Live, which we've been trying to track down, called Welcome to the Fun Zone. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which was hosted by Dr. Demento, and Bozo the Clown was on the pilot. It was supposed to be this kind of wacky version of Saturday Night Live that they could air in the off-season. Tanked immediately. It's horrible, but uh, <laughs> I think technically we're, Weird Al was the musical guest, and I think technically he did Fun Zone as a theme song to that, but... Who's going to count that? Not even Weird Al is going to count that. Uh, and the other one is uh, an animated program called Milo Murphy's Law, which is pretty good. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Weird Al is a wonderful musician. I like how, like, fast this theme song is. I like oh. how it's it's not just telling you the story of the show. It's telling you an extremely elaborate story of the show, and that is 
absolutely adorable. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. It came this close to winning. Uh, the next two nominees were nominees of mine that didn't make the final cut. Uh, first off, it's the very odd yet weirdly appropriate theme to the short-lived 1980s spy series, Masquerade. Okay, Masquerade is a show. <laughs> it was a weird premise for a show. If you'll recall, it was about uh, a uh, a spy organization which, in order to hide their spies from enemy agents, uh, they recruited regular everyday Americans who had certain skills that they needed to pull off a clandestine heist. Mm. Uh, the pitch for the show was basically these people were getting a spy vacation and complete with like a tour bus and like exotic locales and that's how the theme song works the theme song is like come and check out ex you know beautiful france with our wonderful tour group <laughs> you'll have a masquerade and you will eat some snails and then you'll fall in love and kill some KGB agents masquerade wait what was that about killing somebody wait, wait what was that you'll be and and on top of it all, it's really, really great because the actual uh, imagery that we're seeing underneath the song is... Origi original footage. It's not from the series. Yeah, there's like a couple of like exterior shots of the bus driving around that are from the series, but mostly it's original stuff of people doing spy stuff. And the spy stuff is just like, you know, running your hands up your sexy leg while it's, when it's wearing a stocking. And then, oh no, and the elastic in the stocking, there's a knife. Oh, but the best one ever, of course, is uh, someone who is eating an apple. And then when they turn around, the apple has like phone buttons on it because it's a phone apple. It's an apple phone. Yeah. The first Apple cell phone you'll find in the credits for Masquerade. I'm a big fan. And then um, <clears throat> well, my other nominee, and this is one I felt really strongly about, but just, we couldn't quite agree on it, uh, is... A really, really catchy song. It's a really, really sweet song, and it tells you everything you need to know about why you should watch Julie's Green Room. <laughs> Everybody come on in, it's time to make a scene. Let's get in costume, write a song, and everything in between. Because many parts make up the arts. Brings joy to all our hearts. <laughs> Circus tricks and improv too. Mash them up for me and you and dance. Everybody, we can see. Julie's Green Room is a kids show hosted by Julie Andrews and co-starring uh, a bunch of really adorable puppets and a whole bunch of celebrity guests who teach those puppets various aspects of the entertainment industry and in the Spe episode. Well, specifically theater. But specifically yeah. theater, but not everyone works in theater. Like, Sarah Bareilles isn't, you know, she mm. works in theater, but she's also a, you know, yeah, yeah, solo yeah. musician. Uh, and in the episode where Sarah Bareilles uh, uh, guest stars, she writes the theme song to the show with the Muppets, and it's all about how we work together, we share our art, and we do anything. And it's a really catchy lovely little song mm -mm. and i just like it a lot mm -mm. and i really it gets me jazzed to watch this show that is 
essentially for preschoolers. Like, it's just a little kid's show. <laughs> but it's the kind of little kid's show adults can enjoy as well, because there's a lot of really talented people behind mm. it. And, uh, hey, look, it's Josh Groban. Yes, they saved the music. <laughs> Someone finally sent me a gif of that. Thank you for that, by the <laughs> they, way. For They saved the music. They saved the music. Yes. Um, anyway, it's a really, really catchy, really, really sprightly song, and I like it a lot. But in the end, we had to pick a winner. And one of the things that really helped us pick this winner mm. was it's one of those shows where the theme song is so much better than the actual show <laughs> that the theme song, which isn't even the greatest theme song ever, becomes infinitely better. It It's the one thing that uh, the reason we covered this show was actually as a favor to my wife. Uh, mm. She, I asked her, well, what? What would you like us to cover? What's, yeah, what's something you remember? Yeah, our families have a, to watch a lot of this crap so, with us, and we feel so like what, we owe them one. What sometimes. show would you like to watch with me? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be up late watching this thing, and and so she chose this program based solely on the theme song. She remembered none of the show, mm-hmm. but she remembered the song, and that song was "Nearly Departed." Everyone lately is making me crazy. Now that we've joined the deceased. There'll be no resting in peace near, nearly departed. Stumbling cockeyed, the moment that rocks light came tumbling down on our heads. Maybe we're better off dead, dear, nearly departed. It's hard to ignore when... Now, I... Eric Idle is not a credited songwriter, but he totally wrote that thing. Or at least he put his own stamp on it. Uh, Eric Idle is, of course, a member of Monty Python, and he's responsible for some of their greatest musical numbers, especially um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, uh, which I consider to be legitimately one of the best songs ever written, just in any medium, Mm. regardless. uh, I've told the story before, but I had the incredible experience of interviewing Eric Idle and Eddie Izzard at the same time. Oh gosh! And I, and boy, you, was that a cool day! You got no, no words in edgewise, I'm sure. Oh, I no, they were very, very nice actually. And I got to tell them that I actually sang "Always Look on the Bright Side of Life" as my like valedictorian speech in high school. Mm-hmm. And Eddie Izzard was just like, "That is the world's national anthem," and I always thought that was a really funny way of putting it. But it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so he writes really, really catchy songs, really, really funny songs, and I would not be surprised to learn that he wrote the theme song that nearly departed, because it's another one of those songs that tells you everything about the plot, mm-hmm. everything you need to know about the storyline right there in the theme song to Nearly Departed, and there's Eric Idle just sort of lightly capering throughout the sitcom soundstage, <laughs> singing the song directly into the faces of the human characters who can't see him. Uh, the plot doesn't actually make a lot of sense, and some of the stuff that they like talk about in the song, like, nobody can except the old man. Why? <laughs> that doesn't explain shit. Like, why? I never understood that. But, um, yeah, it is the best part of the show by far. <laughs> like, it's the o- some... only notable part of the show at all. Yeah, I-, I remember getting a couple of chuckles here and there throughout mm. Nearly Departed, but that was it. Like, it is not a good show. But... Really, really catchy song. Deserves all the credit in the world. And it wins our award for best theme song. Absolutely. Hooray. So congratulations. Here's your SUNY. It is a uh, 50-pound nugget of gold Ooh. with chocolate inside. Good luck getting the chocolate. 
Or maybe the chocolate should be on the outside. Next time we'll do it on the outside. Dang it. Next up, we have best pilot episode. Uh, the art of the pilot episode is something that is perhaps sometimes underappreciated by a lot of people, especially in the age of binging, mm. where you get past the pilot episode right away. But most shows start with only one episode. Mm. And then based on the strength of that episode, you've seen Pulp Fiction, they decide if they're going to do more shows. <laughs> uh, and that's why it's really, really, really important to not just make a good pilot episode, but have a pilot episode that shows the promise of the series. Yeah. That shows not just, it's so easy for a pilot episode to just get stuck introducing characters and it doesn't tell you what the actual show is going to be like. So we have learned a lot about what matters and what really, really counts in writing a pilot episode while doing Cancel Too Soon. And this is another category in which we couldn't even come up with five nominees. We had to have uh, six overall. Uh, so let's... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it's six. It's six. It is six. I'm almost miscounted. Uh, so, but let's let's get started with an episode of, of a show that we literally just reviewed. It's the last yeah. episode of Cancel Too Soon. Let's yeah. talk about Flash Forward. Flash Forward is a really terrific pilot because it does everything a pilot ought to do. Yeah. It ought to explain the premise cleanly and efficiently. Mm -hmm. The premise of the show, where you're going to go from here. Uh, it has a really intriguing premise. Uh, the premise of the show is everyone on Earth, the entire every human being, blacks out at the exact same time at, for 2 minutes and 17 seconds, and when they wake up, they've all had a vision of the exact same point in the future. About, uh, two, about a year and a half. No, it's six months. Or six months. You're it's right. like it's like from October to April, so a little bit. That's more right. Than six so about months. about six months into the future, and they get to see a, just like a, two minutes of their lives in the future. And uh, how does the world deal with that? Boom! It introduces all of the characters really, really, really efficiently. Mm -hmm. We know who they are after one scene. We know their relationships. They don't have to belabor a lot of the origin stories. We get, are just sort of put into this, and by the end of the pilot episode, we know where we've left off. We have a really intriguing mystery. We have a core set of characters and a bunch of supporting characters, and we all understand how they're all connected to one another. Yeah. And it's, it's a huge cast. This is a, hard to do. It was a really complex balancing act, and I think it did it all perfectly. I've, I've talked to so many people who think that, like, in order to have an ensemble cast in uh, a movie or a TV show, you need hours upon hours to give everyone something to do. That is not the case. Efficient writing and writing in which you actually know how to balance multiple characters within the same scene mm. is a really underappreciated skill. And Flash Forward, yeah, Flash Forward crams a ton of show without, into one episode. Without seeming busy. No, it doesn't feel rushed. It introduces all the elements of the show that are important. It takes time to be funny. Like, there's a couple of, like, people who have flash-forwards that are just kind of banal and stupid, but, like, mm -hmm. it understands that it's kind of important to take the piss out of itself already, because it's going to be a very serious show. Uh, flash-forward, that, that pilot episode rocks, and if you're going to, like, write a show or an ongoing narrative or even just, like, a long novel or something like that, and you're trying to figure out, like, how to get a lot of information mm -hmm. out right away in an exciting way, flash-forward is worth studying. It's excellent. Uh, my next nominee is uh, something we actually just talked about, so I want to get it out of the way really, really quickly. It is the pilot episode of Masquerade. Now, once again, the, the premise of Masquerade is there's a spy. He is played by Rod Taylor. Rod Taylor has found out that all of his secret agents have been uh, uncovered by the KGB. He has no more spies, and in order to keep fighting the good fight in the Cold War, he needs to recruit normal people. The pilot episode 
sells you on this premise so effectively, not just because it's a fun plot in which Mm. they have to prevent a KGB agent played by the amazing Oliver Reed. (laughs) They have to prevent him from getting, like, promoted to a position where he could potentially, like, run Soviet Russia and become, like, the biggest enemy Americans ever known. So their whole scheme is to undermine his credibility to all of his bosses. And they recruit an all-star lineup of really, really cool actors in order to basically fuck him up. We've got, uh, who we got? We got Ernest Borgnine. We got Sybil Shepard. We got Richard Roundtree, Shaft himself. We've got Robert Morse. This is a great, you know, kind of impressive cast. You can build a whole movie around this. And they, once again, they all get their time. They all get fun things to do. They're all really, really entertaining characters. This is a, a double-sized episode. This feels like the kind of episode where, mm-hmm. all right, if Masquerade doesn't get picked up, we can sell this as a movie. But it does that in a good way because I would see this movie. Yeah. If this movie were just available as a movie, I think people would remember this movie very, very fondly because it's a fun ensemble spy caper. Yeah. Uh, so it is worth checking out if you've never seen it, you never heard of it. Uh, it's definitely worth tracking down. Certainly, at the very least, if nothing else, see the pilot of Masquerade. Not every episode afterwards capitalizes on the promise of it, but the promise is all right there. Uh, next up is a show that I'm actually a little surprised you picked. Oh, yeah. Uh, not because it's the worst thing ever, just because I don't remember it like really wowing me, mm-hmm. although I did like it more than most seem to. It is The Star Lost. Now, The Star Lost is... Make, I'll make no bones about it. It's quite a bad show. Yeah. Uh, it, it, does, it has a really interesting premise, however. The problem is with the show is that it didn't live up to its premise, and also it's really, really cheap. It's astoundingly uh, cheap. Like it has this this huge sci-fi premise about uh, like thousands upon thousands of little biospheres attached to a gigantic ship that's uh, been drifting through the cosmos for who knows how long. And yeah. uh, all of humanity, has all of, been all of like, humanity is on it. Yeah, and rather than everyone sharing like a huge space station like environment, everyone has decided because we're humans. Uh, to, like, sort of split off. So there's one biosphere that's nothing but the Amish, and they have no idea that they're on a spaceship. And there's one biosphere that's nothing but sexist assholes. Mm. (laughs) Like, most of these people don't even know they're on a spaceship anymore. They've been on it for so long. And in the pilot, there are two of the Amish people discover that they're on a spaceship Mm. and escape. And what's more, when they escape and they're they're in this giant, like, Leviathan piece of machinery that would should totally destroy their brain to even know that it exists. <laughs> they also find out that the navigation is fucked and the ship is flying towards a star. And they they're figuring out what a ship is, they're figuring yeah. out how to talk to the computer. Mm-hmm. It's all really fascinating. It's kind of pessimistic. Yeah, very pessimistic. Um, and it's very Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, Cordwainer Bird. Um which was the the name Harlan Ellison was operating under when he made the show. Yeah, he he uh, liked the idea, but there he, he ran into so many problems in production he had his name taken off of it. Um, but the first episode it feels pretty Harlan Ellison. The first episode it feels is, pretty yeah, Harlan Ellison. Uh, it's high concept. It's cynical. There's some really good ideas. There's in a it. way to deal with that kind of high concept uh, science fiction on a budget. Just this show didn't do it. Yeah. But I think that is a really fascinating premise, and I think it was presented in this really kind of Twilight Zoney sort of way. So it, it really stands on my. 
ahead. Uh, I, I maintain that The Star Lost is one of the shows that we've covered that could benefit most from a reboot. For sure. If this came out today, same basic premise, you rewrite it, obviously, but mm. you treat it the way you treat Westworld, this could be a major hit show. I mm. really do think this is... It, it's a damn shame it's not more popular. Um, okay, next up, I actually have two more shows. Mm. Uh, we had... Uh, uh, speaking of sci-fi... And speaking of uh, uh, classic sci-fi television, you may have heard the name Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> uh, Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry is considered one of the sci-fi visionaries of the 20th century. But not everything he touched turned to gold. He did a pilot episode for a supernatural series that most people have never heard of. And that's a shame because the pilot episode slash TV movie of Spectre rocks. Spectre is a really fun show. I love Spectre. And it, it feels it feels like a, a kind of a forgotten low budget seventies demon film in a lot of ways, this yeah. this pilot. Yeah, yeah. This was released theatrically, uh, I think, in England, and they just added a little extra like nudity and violence to it. But mm. it's pretty rock solid. It's a private detective type show, but the private detective is uh, is it Robert Culp? Robert Culp. Robert Culp. Uh he uh he's this like really rich and swarthy and totally awesome sex bomb of a man who's also an expert in the occult and at the beginning of the episode he's been cursed like a piece of his heart has been torn out by a magical spell and they have to abscond to England uh, in order to solve a mystery that will determine why he has been marked for supernatural death and also there will be orgies aplenty (laughs) <laughs> or you get an orgy, and you get an orgy, and you get an No, nope, you're sp- British. You don't get a good orgy. <laughs> you get an orgy that gets cut off really, really fast in a really, really funny way. Uh, need I remind you that you know England is home to a monarchy? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think some of those royals were, were getting into some uh, some mischief? I know that there were many in orgy, but there's this there's this balance, Inspector, between sort of prim and proper and very British, mm-hmm. and also uh, sort of free love 1960s slash 1970s. Everyone bone each other real fast. <laughs> just just what else are we going to do for an hour? We haven't invented cable television yet. Just bone each other real mm-hmm. fast. Get weird. Like, it's a sexy show. It's kind of a scary show. The dialogue is really, really sparkling. The plotting is actually rather good. It is an underappreciated gem, and it's another one that I really, really hope one day gets noticed. Mm. Uh, and then my last nominee before we announced the winner, which was one of Whitney's picks, but I agreed, mm. uh, is a show that is another one that is completely lost to time. Nobody talks about it. But it is surprisingly cool. It's called Badlands 2005, or sometimes 2005 Badlands. And it was directed by George Miller. The other one. It's a Mad Max thing. Yeah, ripoff. It 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 co-stars Hugh Keys Byrne, the bad guy from Mad Max and Mad Max Fury Road. And it was directed by George Miller. And it's about a post-apocalyptic wasteland where people get in like huge car accidents and car chases. And it's a different George Miller than the one who directed the Mad Max movies. That's weird. And it stars a, a, a little bit more of a Han Solo type than a Mad Max type. Yeah, he's Mad very cocky and cool. Yeah, it's kind of kind of. But he has a, a robot sidekick played by Miguel, Miguel Ferrer, who is great. His his boss is played by Sharon Stone. Back when she was, uh, people knew who she was, but she wasn't really famous yet. It was, well, a, she, it was she was a, known for like this type of stuff at the time. Yeah, she, like a she, lot of B movies. She'd done like stuff. a Wes Craven movie that nobody liked. Was it? Um, 
Deadly Blessing. Oh, yeah. That's about right, evil yeah. Mennonites. It's not a good film. <laughs> it's not a good film at all. Wes Craven was really hit or miss. But, uh, but Badlands 2005, if, if someone had told you that George Miller, the George Miller from Mad Max Fury Road had directed this TV pilot, you would believe them because mm. there is a ton of cool shit in here. Mm. The premise is really, really simple and cool. You know, there's a cool guy and his robot sidekick played by Miguel Ferrer. They run afoul of bad guys in the desert. There's a ton of cool car stunts and train stunts and all the flesh gets ripped off Miguel Ferrer and he's a really cool robot animatronic. <laughs> and some sexual chemistry with Sharon Stone who sadly doesn't get much to do other than mm. that, but she does her job really, really, really well. It would have been a really cool show. I'm still bummed it only went to a pilot. Like, that show was neat. And it's another one where it's worth tracking down. You can find it online pretty easily. Look for Badlands 2005. It's pretty damn cool. (laughs) Uh, But our number one pick, and uh, I think it's a show we're going to be talking about a couple of times, (laughs) uh, is a show that was surprisingly not just funny, but also legitimately great. It's Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Uh... Okay, the premise here is it, it's a joke premise. Yeah, it's like a Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah, like the idea is Jean Claude Van Damme playing himself uh, is now uh, understands that his career isn't quite what it used to be. He's not in the same. I mean, he's still in awesome shape, but he's not in his prime any longer. And uh, as it turns out, not only was he a big, huge, humongoid movie star back in the late 80s and early 90s, mm. but he was also secretly a spy who was using those film shoots as his cover when he was off doing spy stuff. Yeah. And, and Jean-Claude Van Damme plays himself. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an adult swim short. You know, yeah. that's not something you write a series around. And yet. Uh, and yet, <laughs> somehow... Not just in in the pilot, over the course of the whole series, but in the pilot as well, they hint at this weird kind of profundity about Jean-Claude Van Damme's painful self-awareness of his place in popular culture. Yeah. Uh, This was something he explored in a movie called JCVD, which mm -hmm. is kind of a cult movie at this point. But uh, it's it's, really good. It doesn't get talked about enough anymore, but it's Mm. easily his best film. It was talked about a lot when it came out in like 2005 or whenever it was. But it's been 15 years Mm. or so and people don't talk about it much, but they should. It's really, really good. Um, But yeah, this is a really self-aware but legitimately funny show. And right from the beginning, it sort of mocks Jean-Claude Van Damme's career while also celebrating his career and acknowledging that most people think he's only made one good movie, Time Cop. Mm. That's not true, but it's the popular one. Um, And it shows the kind of melancholy that can come from depending upon popularity and financial success and celebrity for for your your own livelihood. Not just for your livelihood, for your self-worth. He's an empty vessel, and when he is suiting up again to go back on a job, and the movie he's making is this action-packed version of Mark Twain's... um, Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. Ludicrous. Um, uh, uh, It's pathetic. Mm. It's pathetic to see him go back to this. It's pathetic to see Jean-Claude Van Damme make Jean-Claude Van Johnson. And yet... 
they clearly love Jean-Claude Van Damme and they clearly have a lot of affection for his place in pop culture history and the significance that he and his career have had. Mm. And Jean-Claude Van Damme isn't afraid to go there, even in the pilot episode, and make himself not look good. But also, be funny. He plays two roles in the pilot episode. He plays a guy who <laughs> just coincidentally happens to look just like Jean-Claude Van Damme and he's hilarious as that guy. And who, and who really loves Time Cop. Yeah, it's great. To the point where he sees that he looks exactly like Jean-Claude Van Damme and he thinks it's him. It's like, I've seen Time Cop. I don't touch you. <laughs> it's so fucking weird. Uh, yeah, it's it's a real, real delight. And uh, yeah, uh, we will be talking about it again throughout the show. So let's move on. Um, one of the tricks when we do cancel too soon is uh, we are constantly watching TV shows that don't have an ending. That they're canceled. They're canceled. Sometimes they're canceled. Uh, and the final episode more or less wraps everything up and you know, it feels like, you know, pretty satisfying. Mm. Sometimes and they end on a giant cliffhanger and it's annoying as hell. Sometimes they end on a cliffhanger and I don't give a damn. That's true. But sometimes they just end on a cliffhanger. It's like, well, there's no way this would be satisfying and I'm I'm not sure how they would pick that up or I'm so interested. Yeah. Like this is the first time I'm interested in a bad show. Yeah, this that is that I wish wow. they would kind of continue. Wow, what a what a twist or wow, what a what a big swing that they took. Um, and the first nominee that we had is actually one that I didn't really consider because I'm going to be perfectly frank. Mm. I don't remember what the cliffhanger was. Oh, okay. So you're going to have to tell me mm. why the ending of Still Starcrossed mm. left you wanting. Well, Still Starcrossed had a. First of all, it had a premise that made me kind of rolling my eyes. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the show, it kind of won me over. It me was too. about the aftermath of uh, the suicides of Romeo and Juliet in the play Romeo and Juliet. What happened in Verona to the Montagues and the Capulets and the political interplay therein immediately following the events of a very famous play? Yeah, uh, William Shakespeare's play ends right after the prince gives a big speech about you've all learned a valuable lesson and now there's going to be peace. But someone wisely pointed out that probably wouldn't happen right away, if at all. Mm. There would be a lot of follow. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of political intrigue going on. And so it's all about the characters who are left over yeah. trying to make sense of the aftermath. The, the main character is Rosaline, who yeah. doesn't appear in Romeo and Juliet. Well, some directors put her in. But yeah, but usually she, she's just, just no talked lines. about. She's yeah. just talked about. But yeah, uh, um, she's played by Lashana, Lashana Lynch. Lashana Lynch, who's great in the role. And uh, she's going to show up in No Time to Die later this year. That's right. Yeah, yeah. She, she, She's really terrific in this show. Yeah, I've... As soon as they were getting into like the legit political grievances that were going on in Verona and how people were uh, like Montagues and Capulets were like buying up each other's property and trying to play the prince off of other political appointments. It was like a and, mafia show. Yeah, after yeah, a while. yeah, yeah. And uh, right like two at rival. right at the end of the show, uh, it turns out uh, I think it was Lady Montague mm. came back from abroad. And realized, oh, I was dealing with you know that Scottish nonsense, and uh, implying she, that she was Lady, implying Macbeth. that she was also Lady Macbeth, right That's at hilarious. the time when uh, Lashana Lynch was right at the beginning, like people were shipping off to war, everything was about to erupt into violence, and we learned right at the very end that Juliet might still be alive. Oh shit! I don't remember that at all. <laughs> oh my god, that is a good cliffhanger, but might, I don't and, actually remember. And it, like, like there's all this talk about how somebody might be seeing Juliet's ghost, but it might be that she was actually still alive and lurking yeah. around the tombs. It's like, oh, well, holy shit! If you're gonna go that far, I want to see where you're gonna go even further. Yeah, get Hamlet involved. Jeez. Yeah. Um, 
That's great, uh, yeah. and especially I do especially like when they started like incorporating other Shakespeare in the hopes that we've created like a larger Shakespeare, <laughs> Shakespeare universe. shared universe. I'm down. That sounds awesome. Uh, yeah, that one didn't make as much of an impression on me, but right. I still like that show a lot. Uh, my next pick is a, a one that well, again, we just covered it. Uh, it's Flash Forward. Mm-hmm. As again, the premise of Flash Forward is at the beginning of the show, everyone on Earth blacks out at the same time, and they have a vision of the future in like seven months. Uh, at the end of the show, there is a big finale. What a great ending to the season because the whole thing plays like a Greek tragedy. Everyone knows what's going to happen to them, but they don't know why or exactly how or uh, what necessarily it means. And there are people who are trying to avoid their fate and people who are through machinations of their own or by just tragedy find themselves falling into their fate, even if they didn't want it to happen. Mm. But they also find out, like, right at the end that uh, there's another flash forward coming in, like, 15 minutes. And then in that 15 minutes, there's, like, an assault on an FBI, like, building in Los Angeles. And there's a giant bomb that's going to go off. And the entire thing ends with a huge flash forward. Everyone on Earth sees another flash forward. But this one's going to be years down the line. And we see, like, you know, the the protagonist's daughter is, like, a young woman. Mm. And we see, like, all these really intriguing things about, like, people getting arrested and wills getting signed. And, they they, they essentially know. started over They again. essentially they, started uh, over. But, like, that's what we want. That's exactly what the show needed was to have that no- another boost and to switch it up. Mm. It's a good cliffhanger. Is it a great cliffhanger? No, there's a reason it's a nominee. But I do think it was exactly the way the show needed to end, and it left me wanting more. So it did its job. Uh, tell me about why you picked the uh, se- uh, season-slash-series finale mm. of the 1995 version mm. of American Gothic. Well, American Gothic it was incredibly high concept, to the point where it's difficult to follow. Yeah. It's this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere where, uh, essentially, uh, somebody who may or may not be the Antichrist, a young boy, is being fought over by... A, a very very good family and the local corrupt sheriff who like is in league with demons or and something. may even yeah, be may, like the and devil. may even be the devil himself played and, by Gary Cole by the way very cool performance yeah really good performance from Gary Cole is maybe the the only good one uh, hey, 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 hey hey office space. No, I meant, Gary, I meant in that show. Oh, in that oh, yeah. show. Ah, there's no, a couple, but Gary, Gary Cole is fine. I actually think he's a very funny actor. But I'm uh, glad. Okay. But uh, the whole uh, premise of the show, they kept drifting from this premise, but uh, for the most part, it was about how uh, the Antichrist character, this boy, was being... Played by Lucas Black from Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Yeah, but, but when he was a boy, he was, yeah, he was like maybe, maybe yeah. 12 or 13, uh, was kind of being influenced by uh, the moral and the immoral people in his life and trying to get him to choose whether or not to be a demon or an angel. And yeah. there's, a, like, a lot of psychic to do. And But by the end, and unfortunately, uh, they aired out of order, so by the end, by the time we get to the end of the series, they actually kind of backtrack this, but... Mm-hmm. I, Lucas, I, I tried to get you the right order of the show, but I don't think you actually watched it. I, right I didn't order. actually watch them in the right order. You watched order. it in the, in the uh, uh, distribution order? I watched them in production order. Yeah, it makes, works way it, better it, it, in production I'm order. sure it does, but they leave us off, and Lucas Black has essentially become the Antichrist. Okay, now what? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a big they, confrontation, and I get the impression that he's, like, like he, he's probably a, healed, but can he come back from that? Like, yeah, he, was, he was wicked. <laughs> like, he was a monster. Yeah, like, he, he was, like, given demon powers and just sort of unleashed hell on everything. It's like the, the end of the first season you're going there? I thought you would save this for the end of the show, but yeah. no. 
I guess it was the end of the show, but uh, yeah, I want to see what. I want to see how they're going to cover for this. How are they going to backtrack? I actually preferred, because it's a similar show that we covered called Point Pleasant, which was uh, mm. more of like a, the OC slash Dawson's Creek version of this, well, where it's, well, yeah, a, with, it's a teen melodrama, but one of the teenagers might be the Antichrist. Mm. And at the end of the final season, everyone who like could have potentially pulled her back from wickedness because of their melodramatic soap opera bullshit failed her and then she decided fuck everyone in the whole world i'm mm. gonna kill them all and it just ends with her like walking down a highway with, with a, a cloud of crows yeah it's her. a cool image and i was like so excited about it and then like all of those really good people are just like we really screwed up we're all fucked she like cursed my dad and made him blind i love her to pieces but she's gotta die <laughs> so i consider that a better version of the american gothic one but american okay, gothic okay. did come first to be fair, so kudos. It's just not my favorite pick. Um, my runner-up pick uh, was, surprise, surprise, Jean-Claude Van Johnson. <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Johnson has well, a they, really... Well, they, they set us up... I'm they, not sure if I would call this a cliffhanger. I think it is, though, because right. here's why. Here's why. Because it, it plays like a joke, even if, if, if it doesn't lead to anything. Okay, but again, as we've established, everything in Jean-Claude Van Johnson plays like a joke. On mm. paper, it's all a dumb joke. But what's surprising is how seriously we take it. At the end of Jean-Claude Van Johnson, Jean-Claude Van Damme may have rescued, you know, saved the day, but he's also completely destroyed his body. He has renounced his celebrity. Um, he's done, mm. basically. He's just going to retire, and that's that. And then it turns out, um, you know how there was a time travel agent in one earlier episode, and we never really talk about that? Yeah, there's a time war in the future, and all of that time cop talk is going to get really, really important later. Mm. And the reason why that excites me is, yeah, it's a dumb, funny cliffhanger ending. It's like when Samantha Mathis shows up at the end of Super Mario Brothers, the movie, yeah. with a big super scope, and just like, guys, you aren't going to believe this. Credits. But in Jean-Claude Van Johnson, that's a promise that I think they might have kept. To actually mm. see Jean-Claude Van, Van Damme actually do a time travel story that makes the most out of the time travel premise maybe sends him back in time to some of his earlier films so that we can see some of his earlier missions without it just being the, the a imagination boggles the imagination there's really no limit to what the show could have done with that premise and i'm actually mm. bummed out we never got more on top of that but it is on its own mm. a satisfying ending with kind of a, a gag Mm. cliffhanger but i actually think they could have capitalized on it so for me it's a real tragedy okay uh but the it, it plays to me more like a, a gag than you yeah. know an actual legit cliffhanger but uh, fair it, enough it, it functions yeah as fair enough but the one that we agreed on mm. is the one where the cliffhanger was so much better than the show <laughs> the cliffhanger was really <laughs> fucked up and weird the cliffhanger for the show here and now <laughs> all right here and now is a big ensemble drama from uh, creator Alan Ball, who is uh, well-known. He won an Oscar for American Beauty. He created um, Six Feet Under, and uh, he adapted the novel series uh, True Blood for television. He's a very well-respected TV uh, filmmaker. But Here and Now was really kind of unfocused. It was about this kind of blended family where Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter... Uh, were these like big epic hippies who like taught philosophy and tried to live their ideals and they adopted kids from all over the world and now they're all adults and they're just kind of a weird eccentric dysfunctional family and, and of course everybody's struggling and everybody's lying and there's yeah. a lot of soap opera stuff going on yeah. and some the, of it works some of it doesn't yeah. i found it to be a mostly unremarkable show but there was this one element that they kept teasing 
Well, there was a supernatural thing going on. Yeah, but it was show. pretty the, subtle, and maybe the, it wasn't important, yeah, or maybe it was. In the pilot, uh, one of the sons uh, had a vision at a party. Yeah. Says at his dad's, was it his, like, 60th birthday party or It was something. a birthday party, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, he saw uh, numbers appear in his mind. He saw eleven, eleven, and yeah. he wasn't sure what it meant, but he knew that this was some sort of portent of the future. Mm-hmm. And of course, all of the other family members heard about the numbers eleven, eleven, and that numerology started appear through, yeah. appearing throughout the show. And, and this this character th- where they were going and affected the drama. This character, though his his family had like a history of mental illness, so they weren't really taking it seriously. They were concerned that. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's going through some sort of actual psychosis and needs real, real help. The end of the season, eleven eleven comes up on a clock, and that's when a volcano erupts and kills that's, everyone. Sp- specifically, Mount Rainier erupts yeah. uh, in in the Pacific Northwest. So. Uh, which is a dormant volcano. It hasn't erupted yeah. for quite some time. Yeah. And yeah, then a volcano erupts. Everybody's freaking out. And that's the last episode. Yeah, the, of the whole show. family's separated. Some people are really close to it. One person's actually trekking up the mountain. And it's just like, this changes the entire show completely. The, the supernatural stuff has now been validated. Yeah. It's not a matter of mental illness. There actually is mm-hmm. like, like a psychic underpinning to this show. And. And it kind of almost makes the first season feel like kind of a waste of time. Like, I, <laughs> it's a hell of an ending. I do want to see what happens next. I wouldn't have without this ending. Like, it was fine. Like, the cast was good. But nothing about it really mm-hmm. grabbed me. And then, holy shit. What the fuck is this melancholy of bullshit? What the <laughs> fuck? It's crazy. So, it was a cool ending to a not particularly good show. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, it's the most memorable thing about it. Um, our next award. First off, congratulations to Here and Now. Congratulations, Here and Now. Yes. Y- you snagged us. Uh, our, our next award is the annual Lee Van Cleef Award. <laughs> uh, named after the great Lee Van Cleef, star of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and a ton of other great movies. And who, Master Ninja. And in the later part of his career, like a lot of great actors, ended up doing a bunch of crap. Mm. And... We like to talk about rising stars in television. In fact, the next award after this is the award for Best Future Star, where we run into an actor years before they ended up becoming big. But sometimes we see rising stars, and sometimes we see falling stars in television. And we like to sort of point out the times when, okay, it's good that the actor got work, but TV did them dirty. TV yeah. owed these actors better well, than this, what they got. Right now, you know, it's it's actually because of the state TV is in right now and you know, pe- streaming services like Netflix and HBO and Apple are just mm-hmm. pouring money into all of this original content and big stars are getting their own TV shows. That That's not, it's not shameful. It's, in fact, it's, it, uh, it's a great encur- career move. Yeah, it's, it's encouraged. It's even preferred to just having a hit film now. I um, remember when uh, this this was uh, something everyone was talking about when Kiefer Sutherland, hmm. uh, who was for a time a box office draw, a pretty well-known actor, uh, and then in the late 90s, couldn't get big roles, kept getting supporting hmm. roles, became a bit more interesting of an actor, but he just wasn't selling tickets. And uh, everyone was like, when he started to do this TV show 24, there was this sort of attitude like, well, there he goes. That's it. To television. That's a shame. And And then 24 revitalized his career and made him a fucking superstar again because the show actually knew what to do with Kiefer Sutherland. And now a lot of actors are doing the exact same thing. So, uh... But sometimes uh, it goes until, wrong. Up until kind of recently, <laughs> that was the attitude. When you do TV, that's sort of like a step down. You don't do... Yeah. If you're a big star, you don't do television. Yeah. Uh... 
this is in tribute to that era. Yeah. But and, a, bi- a big star could be doing so much better than this. And indeed, sometimes it still happens. Mm. But uh, my first nominee is an actor who was a wonderful actor. In fact, uh, performed perhaps one of the most iconic roles in all of cinema. It's Anthony Perkins in Mistress of Suspense. He was the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, so Mistress of Suspense was a, a, a serialized thriller series with a whole bunch of all-star British actors who were uh, all adapting uh, the creepy and cynical works of Patricia Highsmith. She doesn't really tell a lot of supernatural stories. She just talks about how people are evil bastards to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the episodes are really, really good. Some are forgettable. I'm Overall, I quite like the show. In order to tie everything together, they decided they needed a host. Makes a lot of sense. They wanted to get someone who was pretty cool. They got Anthony Perkins, the star of Psycho. It all makes sense. What's tragic about this isn't that Anthony Perkins did this show. What's tragic about this isn't that he's essentially a crypt keeper. What's tragic is that they couldn't think of anything for him to do. They, just, they went to just a castle... Not even so, a castle, just like a nice country a house. nice country. Could, Could have been his house, I don't know. Yeah, just went to his house, had him wander around, gave him some unrelated dialogue, and one he's just sort of in this kitchen. Yeah, there's one where he just in goes into a freezer, and he's just like, ice cream. I like ice cream. Mm. It's really, really good. And now this. Like, that's the whole thing! (laughs) Introduce the show. It's not his fault. It's the writers. They had nothing. Mm. They just slapped this thing together over an afternoon. At least that's how it feels. And it's such a waste of Anthony Perkins, who, you know, only had a couple of years left in him. He tragically died a few years later. (laughs) I want to see Anthony Perkins be a fun crypt keeper, for Christ's sake. I mean, maybe not literally, but he could be a fun host. Yeah, He's a fun actor. Yeah, that one that one just hurt my soul. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, next up, we have someone who I was actually surprised you picked. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear you talk about why you selected Henry Rollins mm-hmm. from Deadly Class. I, I think it's just because I hate Deadly Class. Uh, <laughs> Deadly Class was a show for the Sci-Fi Network, and uh, they... they we learned from a really, really wonderful show called Blood Drive mm-hmm. that they were really trying to do what HBO was doing in the 90s. That is to say, we can have blood, tits, and cussing. So we're, <laughs> God damn it, we're going to have blood, tits, and cussing. Yeah, we're going to go as over the top uh, as we can. And it really worked with Blood Drive. Blood yeah. Drive was one of the most entertaining shows we have ever covered. Yeah, it, it's, it's really wild. It has a lot of really weird and interesting ideas. It has this really wicked sense of humor. It's actually yeah. really... It, it it grabs you pretty soon. Like yeah. it, it seems like they're being sort of trashy for the sake of it. Yeah, one or two uh, but, episodes but in, you're gonna you're gonna figure out what this show is doing, and it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like Deadly Class was being trashy for the sake of it. I feel like it didn't have enough of an ethos going on. It was really yeah. kind of a blandly nihilistic show whose violence didn't really connect to me. And a part of me uh, was almost into that for a bit because it's about teenagers, and the nihilism of teenagers is sometimes. Unearned kind of, kind or un- based, unfocused, or, or yeah. based on a lack of wisdom rather than an abundance of it, and as a result, there's an immaturity to the cynicism mm. of certain teen stories, and that can be very, very fitting. But after a while, you mm. realize it's not the teenagers' immaturity that we're looking at; it's the storytellers. Yeah, and and the premise—it's so stupid. Okay, it turns <laughs> out, it turns out there's a high school hiding in the city somewhere that does nothing but train assassins. What an interesting idea. Yeah. And uh, all of the teachers kind of like in at Hogwarts have specialties. 
So here's and, your poison teacher. So yeah, and Henry Rollins played the poisons teacher, and they clearly got Henry Rollins to act in this to try to give the show a little bit of punk rock cred, a little bit of street cred. Because uh, Henry well, Rollins, well, it's set in the '80s, and Henry yeah. Rollins, of course, emerged from the '80s as a bit of an icon, and yeah, because uh, you know, TV Party is on the, mm-hmm. the Repo Man soundtrack for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah, no, he's Henry uh, Rollins is great. Mm-hmm. Rollins Band kicks ass. Uh, and Henry Rollins, you know, he knows a lot about music. If you ever read his column, you know, I, I've taken some of his music re- uh, recommendations from his columns and got discovered some really interesting bands. He's a cool guy. Yeah. Uh, he's also uh, still alive, which means he learned to calm down the punk ethos. Yeah, he grew up. Uh, yeah. If, if you don't calm down the punk, e- punk ethos, you die. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's a you have to sell out eventually, or else you'll die. It's like I'm gonna fuck my body up. I'm gonna take a bunch of drugs and get in a car. Eventually, you need to stop. Uh, (laughs) Probably not a good idea in the first place, but you really Mm. should stop if you started. So it seems to me that Henry Rollins would hate a show like this. The reason why I didn't vote for him is it even occur to me Mm. because I actually think he's pretty good in it. He he's, he actually gives a good performance. He plays. He you know, actually he plays, plays one of the only kind of interesting characters. Well, because he talks about he's a character who is actually like concerned that the show that the show the the school used to have an ethos. Mm. We used to train people to be assassins so that they could bring more balance to the world because too many people are like fascist dictators and evil bastards and actually need to be killed. I don't agree with that philosophy, but that was their philosophy. It's like the movie wanted. Mm. Um, not, the, not the graphic novel wanted. The movie. Totally different things. But And over the course of the show, he realizes that he has lost his perspective and he wants to leave. And it's implied that he would come back and maybe be an antagonist or a protagonist. I think they knew what to do with Henry Rollins. But now that you put it that way, you're right. It is kind of hypocritical to put Henry Rollins. Even a hypocritical is not the right word. Um <laughs> Uh, C- cynical. It's, I don't know about cynical. I think it's uh, 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 lazy. No, there. I think. Go. Yeah, I think rather than actually ba- a ev- bad kind of shorthand. Rather than actually evoke the vibe that Henry Rollins had, mm. they just put Henry Rollins in it. Yeah, hoping yeah. that he'd carry it with him. Yeah, and Henry Rollins was game. I guess. I mean, again, he gave a good performance. But mm. I see your point. Okay. Uh, my next pick uh, is an actor who uh, was on one of those popular shows of all time. And then ended up in a crappy show that didn't know what to do with him that was vaguely similar, and I felt really, really bad for Walter Koenig and The Star Lost. Oh, yeah, poor Walter Koenig. So Walter Koenig, of course, was uh, Chekhov in Star Trek. He was uh, on the show from season two onward. He was in the movies. First big success and has followed him throughout his career. Yeah, and and Uh, he's good in it. It's it's an iconic character for a reason. Um, Brent Spider once said in an interview that uh, when Star Trek The Next Generation, he played Data. When yeah. Star Trek The Next Generation was coming to an end, he said that he understands the way Star Trek operates now. Mm-hmm. And he even said, even if I win an Academy Award for playing, like, an elderly woman mm-hmm. in, like, in makeup and yeah. just... Something really such, notable yeah, and weird. Yeah. Some, something just where I have to really strain as an actor and I can just put myself out there. When I die, Data's gonna be first in my obituary. Yeah, that's the it picture people matter. are gonna yeah. use. Yeah. Uh, so... Well, and I think all of the actors from Star Trek 
it took them a while to kind of come to peace with that. Yeah, like Leonard Nimoy directed hit movies that have nothing to do with Star Trek. He, he wrote he wrote a biography called "I Am Not Spock." Like there, there were <laughs> then, really, and then one where he wrote it was called "I Am that's Spock." Okay, I'm Spock, but uh, yeah, William Shatner has starred in other hit shows. Mm-hmm. T.J. Hooker, that uh, that lawyer show, his name I can never remember. Boston Legal. Boston Legal. <laughs> all the lawyer shows blend together for yeah. me after a while. If you told me Boston it was Le- L.A. Law, I would have believed you. Boston Legal is pretty great. But, I've uh, heard it was um, good, but, but my point is this. Uh, Walter Koenig had the legacy of Star Trek, and that would be fine. I don't mind, you know, I'm not going to call foul if he takes a similar role down the line. Hmm. What sucks is that the show doesn't know what to do with him. Star Law says, again, you know, they're all in space. They're trying to stop this giant space station from greening into the sun, and they don't know how to do that. So they're just trying to run around, trying to see if anyone knows how to fix this damn ship. Hmm. Eventually, the show gets bored and just says, also aliens. And yeah. Walter Koenig shows up as a really unconvincing alien with terrible costume. Just an embarrassing costume. And he's just and like... he was on Star Trek. I know. And well, in Star Trek, he gave him the worst wig ever. He doesn't look much better here. And, he, and he's trying to infuse this like kind of like enigmatic alien character with some dignity. Mm. And the show has no dignity in which to give him. Yeah. And he just sort of really flails. And it's a damn shame because I like Walter Koenig. I like him as an actor. I've never heard an ill thing said about him as a person. Mm. He, he seems cool. He deserved better than that. So it's just it's a bummer to get to that point in Star Lost where theoretically his character should be interesting and Walter Koenig is trying, but the Star Lost just failed him. Yeah, that's, that, yeah that's, that's fair. That's fair to say. Uh, and another show that we've talked about before, Whitney, mm. you uh, were your nominee mm. was Eric Idle in Nearly Departed. Uh this was okay. Eighties. This was actually a nineties show, like, but yeah, but it's probably like developed in the eighties. It developed in the eighties. Again, like nineteen ninety was right on the cusp. We uh, like to think of decades as being sort of clear and cut. This feels like the nineties. Mm. This feels like the eighties. There's always this, this is, wiggle room for a couple of years. Like the first like two years of the nineties are just a little bit more of the eighties. It's coming from a tradition of the nineteen eighties, though, uh, which was a result of the big comedy boom in the early eighties. Comedy clubs just started opening up everywhere. Uh, Stand up comedy just became a really popular activity. And uh, I, I'm sure there's plenty of reasons why this happened. I'm not going to get into that. Well, but there are a lot of breakout stars. Uh, uh, yeah. Comedy was evolving. Stand-up comedy was evolving. And you can actually talk to a lot of comedians who were working at the time how uh, this was, because it was such a popular activity, and because so many of these stand-up comedians were becoming big stars and getting these really sweet contracts, a lot of people were in it specifically to get TV shows. Mm-hmm. It was a good way to pitch yourself, like your on-stage persona, as a sitcom personality. And indeed, a lot of stand-up comedians got their own sitcoms. Not a lot necessarily took off, but a lot of stand-up comedians were on sitcoms. I feel like Eric Idle, who was in a you know really one of the funniest TV programs ever made in the late 60s, uh, was still trying to get projects done and kind of got swept up in that a little bit. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a, a, a stand-up comedian in the 80s. He was a TV comedian from the 60s. But he, w- there was still probably a lot of people calling him saying, hey, you're well, a comedian. Let's give you a sitcom. And I th- feel and like... You remember, uh, Monty Python alums had had success with sitcoms before. Mm-hmm. Faulty Towers is one of the best sitcoms ever made. That's a John Cleese and uh, Connie Booth show. Yeah. 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 Uh, and everybody's great on it. Uh, yeah. It's a classic. And and they were also like moving into movies and kind of pursuing their own interests. I feel like the Pythons were doing pretty well for themselves. Eric Idle was the one who was 
more so than I think the other Pythons, really trying to continue to push the broad comedy performance angle of his career. Mm-hmm. Even though he was also a, a popular, a, a successful songwriter and was, mm-hmm. I think he was the only one who moved to America. Uh, he, he, well, he lives in L.A. Yeah. now. I don't know if like if he was in the, the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Probably was if he made I feel show. like doing a sitcom, especially a, a bad American sitcom the way this is, mm-hmm. is kind of beneath him at this point well, in his and career. Such, and let's, let's just be fair here. Nearly Departed, catchy theme song aside, mm. it's a good idea for the show done in a really bad way. The idea of a bunch... Because I mean, it's basically a remake of Topper. It's a bunch of upper-crust... British ghosts mm. who now share a house with a very boring blue, blue sitcom, collar American yeah, family, family yeah. who like eat like hot dogs and chili and they're like, ooh, disgusting food. Mm. We're ghosts. And like they don't know what to do with that. They don't know how to make them interact with the family. They decide they can only interact with the grandfather. They never explain why that's a thing, not mm. even in a perfunctory way to sort of establish a theme. And because they can't interact with most of the cast at all in any way, most of most of the time they have nothing to do. Mm-hmm. They're off in their own sitcom, and then all of these other actors are just standing there awkwardly, not saying anything so that the ghosts can talk, even though it doesn't make any sense that they do that. Yeah. So the entire thing just has this really awkward vibe. There's a couple of funny bits in it, but yeah, you're right. It's a it's a waste of uh, it's a waste of Eric Idle. That's a shame. But he, um, he only gets the one good bit, I think, and that's when he has to ensure that the, the the grandfather, who's the only one who can see him, pass a vision test at the DMV. Oh, that's a cute one. And it's as a good bit of physical comedy where uh, he. He can't yell the answers because the grandfather actually can't hear him from across the room, so he has to, like, physically shape himself into letters. I actually like the, uh, there's another bit later where um, the grandfather's supposed to babysit uh, their teenage daughter while the parents are out of the house, and the grandfather wants to go out and, like, gamble with his friends, so he puts the ghosts in charge, and they're like, what the fuck are we gonna do? We're ghosts. And then the the daughter has, like, a boy over, and Mm. Eric Idle is suddenly responsible for making sure that they don't start making out, and he's just trying to do ghost things to make them stop. (laughs) That was briefly funny. The rest of the show was not. Those are two things over, like, six episodes. Didn't really work. But our number one, and with a bullet, because this is a really, really great actor, and in a role that sounds stupid, but could have been really, really fun, and then the show completely let her down. It's mm. Sharon Stone and Agent X. The, the premise of Agent X is that uh, it turns out there was a secret clause in the Constitution that we've just sort of overlooked. Yeah, it's been hidden away in a never catacomb. Mind that, never mind that it's on public display and millions of people have seen this document. Uh, but it's, it's written on the back next to the treasure map. Yeah. <laughs> Hold a candle up to it and the treasure map appears and some <laughs> recipe is also on there. Ooh, uh, fruit salad. <laughs> turns out the vice president of the United states uh have you ever noticed that they don't really have a lot to do well it turns out they have a lot to do because they're in charge of their very own vice presidential spy organization specifically (laughs) one guy uh, one guy who's like the phantom yeah he can just do anything just do anything laws borders nothing applies to him and the president of the united states always just like ah damn it it's a shame we can't save these hostages because they're in this hostile territory and if we did that it would be an act of war isn't that a shame vice president sharon stone and sharon stone just nods like 
Uh-huh. I know what to do. Uh, take your meaning. I'm going to tell that guy to do stuff. And I'm like, that's it. That's all she does is tell this other guy to do stuff. Yeah, the, they uh, don't establish a relationship. They don't have a rapport. She, yeah, she doesn't like, she's not like on the phone with this guy all the time. Yeah. She's not getting any kind of updates. She, she doesn't get to of, do cool stuff too. Uh, like, like jump around on buildings and shoot people. Like She's Sharon Stone. She's the big get of the show. She's and huge. You didn't use her at all. Sharon Stone may not be the big superstar that she was in the 90s. She is to me. Well, my point is this. <laughs> she's a famous name. She's mm. an Academy Award nominated actor. She's an excellent actor. She deserved way better than this. Yeah. This this is a real downer. It's just a real, real downer for Sharon yeah. Stone. Uh, and on top of it, just the show wasn't very good. So Yeah, it's just a really boring program. All right, but on the opposite end of this, let's switch categories. We've got Best Future Star. Now, this happens a lot. We run into a lot of actors because, you know, it's TV. We need to have tons of actors in every episode and you can't reuse them because we don't need we can't use the same barista over and over again. So you run into a ton of actors doing smaller roles or big roles in little shows that nobody watched. And then later on, they became a huge star on TV or movies or some other way. So then there's a ton of these, and some of them we did we didn't even have room for. John Hurt Inspector, not even nominated. <laughs> All right. Sharon Stone, well, Badlands I, 2005, not nominated. I uh, I decided Patton to Pat Oswald, Weird Al yeah. Show. Boom. Yeah, well that's true. Patton. Yeah, he was nobody at the time. Well, he he was the he was known, a stand-up comic, but he was stand-up comic. But apologies, he, like, he was a stand-up comic, he but he was not hu- an actor. Huge humongoid star. Yeah, yeah. okay, I apologize. Yeah. You're right. Ben Oswald had been working his way up for many, many, many years, but when he did the Weird yeah. Al show, he was yeah. just another stand-up comic to most people. Now, when uh, we actually covered, even though it was released as a feature film in American theaters and was in fact nominated for several Academy Awards because it was really, really highly acclaimed. I feel like um, Mulholland Drive might have been a little bit unfair to mention, mm-hmm. but heck, we covered it, so it counts. Yeah, so you actually put, nominated two actors from Mulholland mm. Drive, Naomi Watts and Justin Thoreau. Mm. Justin Thoreau, both of them had been acting a lot. The reason why I didn't nominate Naomi Watts is because I think that, like, Tank Girl was a big enough, like, she's the second lead in that movie, and mm. even though it wasn't a hit, it's a cult favorite, people know it. For me, I think she'd already kind of been big. Right. Uh, but Justin Throw is 100% totally fair. He'd done a little acting, but after that, he became a recognizable star. He wrote some movies as well. Didn't he write uh, Tropic Thunder? Uh, Tropic Thunder, he wrote like Iron Man 2. Like, he, yeah. he, he did a lot, he's done some writing. Became a bit of a renaissance man. Uh, Mulholland Drive, of course, is a film directed by David Lynch. It started off as a long uh, TV pilot uh, for a show that was essentially going to be. Kind of a Twin Peaks kind of thing, but in Los Angeles and in and out of the film industry where things are surreal enough as it is. Uh, And of course, it starred Naomi Watts as a wide-eyed potential ingenue uh, whose life gets changed forever when Mm. an amnesiac, played by Laura Allen Haring, uh, stumbles into her apartment. They form a relationship and they decide to investigate where Laura Haring came from. Uh, The movie added like another like 20 30 minute ending to wrap everything up because you know, it was a pilot there wasn't a definitive ending mm. even by tv standards uh so the movie is kind of a different thing but it is still a failed pilot and the vast majority of the film mm. is that pilot episode that they originally shot Naomi Watts is wonderful in it but I for me I feel like the majority of her like real heavy lifting acting is actually in the new stuff 
So well, it felt like a little bit of a cheat to include. May, maybe so, but uh, after Mulholland Drive, this was what you know what they call the breakout role. It's what mm-hmm. uh, most of the world took note of her for doing, and True. she became a big star in like gigantic A Hollywood productions after this. Yeah. So I think maybe I'm judging her like. L- level of perceived fame yeah, fair enough. Uh, over then sort of the whole, whole arc of her, her career. But and, and, that's why I went with that. And Justin Theroux is really, really fun in this. He plays a director mm-hmm. who uh, his lead actor, he's trying to cast the lead in a movie and uh, there's a sinister cabal that wants him to cast someone else. Mm-hmm. But if fate had its way, he'd probably cast Naomi Watts. And it's all about him trying to like actually protect his artistic vision from this really weird system that makes no sense. <laughs> and it totally tracks and it feels like a pretty valid uh, uh, allegory for the way Hollywood really works. Um, I like it a lot now. It's really good. It's a good pick. Who did you nominate? Uh, one of my nominees is one of my favorite, like, kind of like best future star nominees are the ones where it's a really huge actor who is like one scene. Or yeah. like one line, like a really, really quick blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. Like I remember this, when we saw uh, Birds of Prey, like Aaron Paul showed up in one scene. Yeah, just to be a jerk on a yeah. bus, like that's it. <laughs> uh, uh, Jake Johnson shows up in the last episode of Flash Forward just to start a fight with Joseph Fiennes in a bar. That's it. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> but the one that I nominated is the one where he became a huge star. So when you see him... In an episode of Hammer House of Horror as random murder victim, it's hilarious. It's Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> That's right. Hammer House of Horror v- is a v- very recognizable yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, of course, was James Bond. And before that, he starred in Remington Steel. He's a big, big actor. Everyone knows his face. One of the most handsome men ever. And uh, yeah, and Hammer House of Horror was a British horror anthology uh, with a ton of famous people in it. Pierce Brosnan wasn't famous yet. Uh, and there was an episode about people who are investigating a serial killer who might be inspired by or perhaps the same supernatural murder from generations prior. Yeah. You've seen the premise in sci-fi yeah. and horror uh, shows before. There's a twist in it. This is actually not a particularly good episode of an otherwise really good show. Uh, but yeah, that's the basic premise. And so we see this like you know, creepy, sexy woman seduce a couple of guys, bring it back to apartment, and kill them. Pierce Brosnan is, like, the fifth one. And he's just there. He has, like, one scene with you. They're, like, talking. I think they're in, like, a park or on a swing or something. And he's just like, oh, you're a sexy lady. I hope you don't kill me. And then, like, the next scene, he's dead. Like, that's it. <laughs> he's got nothing. Uh, uh, pretty much. That's it's, it, yeah. I, I'm sure there was a little bit more to it than that. But that's all the impression that it made. It's just so weird that James Bond in such a nothing role. Um, it's hilarious. It's not worth really going into much further than that. It's great. Um, but a much bigger actor, a now Academy Award winning actor, had a really inauspicious debut in the entertainment industry. Tell me about... Which was really hyped up, by the way. Was it? Let's talk about Emily Stone. All right. Emily Stone. Uh, you probably know her now as Emma Stone. Uh, she... As a, the result of was essentially a big reality based game show. Yeah, it was cast in the new Partridge Family. Yeah, they did a whole TV show called In Search of the Partridge Family, where they, they were going to uh, reboot the Partridge Family, but they were going to decide the actors by reality via, TV via, show via like uh, America's, America's Got, Got Talent, Talent yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so yeah, this big embarrassing thing where they're sort of winnowing down. Uh, kids who are going to star on this show you can see like just stage mom salivating backstage (laughs) 
I said, from the diaphragm, from the diaphragm. And there's a whole bunch of like teenagers mm. in the audience who are just like, they're supposed to be super excited about recasting the Partridge, yeah, the Partridge family? family. You weren't even born when that show was on. The show is it's weird. The show is from the early two thousands, and that sort of like seventies nostalgia wave had crashed. Like oh god, five or six years earlier, it was mid nineties. Uh, it was dead. Yeah, like yeah. they were even making making fun of it in Free Enterprise. Yeah, Partridge Family was not a popular thing anymore. Like well, it, it, has, it has a cachet, but like it, it wasn't was, like still uh, well known. Kids today don't still have posters really? of Danny Bonaducci. It's done. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was one of those Gen X nostalgia, '70s nostalgia. But they played it up like uh, we're going to rebuild the Partridge Family. It's going to be the get, coolest thing ever here on VH1, and uh, yeah, and it led to a Emma Stone is one of the people who won a role, and then it had one episode that aired on VH1, and then they quickly realized this was a stupid idea, and we made a huge mistake. Uh, the, the episode itself is. Sp- pretty bad um, pretty darn bad and if there is footage of some of the singing competition that led to it and it's the most embarrassing shit oh, you've ever God. seen and you can see where, her like grinding like a guitar which i'm not even convinced she's playing no, she's definitely not playing okay. um there's uh footage of her singing meredith brooks bitch somewhere online as an yeah. audition piece and the person she's uh, competing against is a better singer yeah, but she just, but she's more charismatic. She has she's more stage more presence. Energy. That's yeah, true. She, That's true. She, I'm not you, denying. You can that. tell that she's actually really comforting, comfortable in front of an audience and yeah. in front of a camera. So I'm not saying to pick the wrong person. I do. I just want to give the other person credit because their career didn't go very if, far. If her career didn't go anywhere, and I had only seen that, I was like, oh, she's actually pretty good. Yeah. Like when you're watching this, she actually brings a lot of presence to it, and, and she's and actually pretty good on the yeah. show, even yeah, though yeah. the show itself uh, isn't good. Her, she's good, and also weird theme running throughout the episode. French Stewart is in that, and he's actually kind of funny in it. Because <laughs> he's also in Deadly Class. Yeah, French Stewart uh, plays their manager. Yeah, the, the manager character. Uh, but it, it, that Emma Stone, you know, when you're seeing her, you're thinking, that kid, if she gets a lucky break, is going to be a star. And lo, she was. It actually worked out for young Emily Stone. Yeah. Um, and she didn't have to go through that horrendous objectification that the two young dudes had to go through. Oh my god. They were like, like they're taking off their shirts and, on, and like doing rotating stages. And, you know, and, oh, it was huge. Oh. It's like, why are you having him sing off? Clearly, you want Team Edward and Team Jacob up there yeah. to just tongue kiss each other for three minutes. Just do that. Yeah, it's horrible. Why not? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, next up uh, is an actor who would go on to play one of the most like beloved cop FBI type characters in recent television history and uh, in an early show he played uh, one of the FBI characters that nobody knows about because nobody watched this show. It's Dean Norris from Breaking Bad who in the TV series Tremors played an FBI agent who's like trying to stop the people in this small town from exploiting a giant paleolithic worm. Yep. That's it. Uh, That's what he does. He's the foil... I haven't seen frame one of Breaking Bad, so I have no idea that this not, guy Nothing at all, really? Nope. Dean no, Norris is one not, of those actors... Not a shred of interest. Dean Norris is one of those character actors who, if you, like, you go back and you watch, like, Lethal Weapon 2, mm. he's, like, the 
eighth lead. He's like one of the cops who gets killed in the massacre towards the end or something like that. Like he's in a lot of stuff. You will just randomly see him in things. Yeah, I, the, the thing with Dean Norris is I can't see him as like a maligned star because he's just one of those really reliable character actors who's in everything. Right. But this so is... when he's in a, a Tremors show, it's like, well, of course he's in a Cancel Too Soon <laughs> show. He probably has eight of these in his on his resume. Uh, he doesn't really, though. There aren't a lot of shows in which he starred. And so Tremors is noteworthy. It's true. It's, there's, a, there's a slight parallel mm. to Breaking Bad. Not big, but, you know, similar locale, similar job. Mm. He's playing, you know, kind of someone who everyone gets the one over on, uh, once over on all the time. Mm. And he's also really, really good. Like, he's the comic foil to a lot of the, the stuff going on. He's the guy who takes it all too seriously and wears suits in the desert. Man. Mm. And um, he's just good at that. He knows how to make that work. And then, like, ten years later, he'd be on Breaking Bad, and he'd be a beloved character, and he'd be brilliant on that show. So, um, it's weird to see him in this goofy sci-fi monster show, (laughs) playing something kind of similar to what he would be doing later so much more brilliantly. Hmm. Um, I don't have a lot more to say than that, other than I like Dean Norris. Good for him. He's good in Tremors. He's good in Tremors. He's better than Breaking Bad. And it was weird to see him. (laughs) That's all. Um, But our number one... Our number one pick uh, is, it's really interesting because we're talking about future stars and usually it's like, okay, so they did this and then five years later they did this or ten years later they were James Bond. Uh, When Nathan Fillion was on Pasadena, he was two months away from starring in Firefly. And Firefly, which we've been reviewing on our uh, for our Patreon subscribers uh, as oh, out of gas, the Firefly podcast. Yeah, uh, we we broke a threshold of of subscribers. Thank you very much. Thank and you. So now we're covering Firefly, something we ne- said we'd never do, and now we're doing it. Yep. Because we broke a, a certain number of subscribers. We made a promise. We keep our uh, promises. And we try anyway. Nathan Fillion, yeah, he was sort of a working actor. I actually hadn't seen any of Firefly until this project of ours. What I had known him from was the movie Waitress, where oh, he yeah. was like the charming boyfriend character who turns out turned out he was kind of a cad, and uh, he was like really kind of sexy male lead sort of thing for the, the yeah. first and only time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, seeing that he actually had a bit of a, a broader career uh, playing a priest in Pasadena was a, a little showed that he had a little bit more range than what I had seen. And it's a really funny role for him, too, because Pasadena was this like primetime sitcom set in Pasadena, the upper crust part of Pasadena, where everyone's rich and uh, uh, sort of alienated from humanity because they are so rich. Mm. I grew up in Pasadena. That was not my experience, but I do know that there are people out there. Um, and Dana Delaney plays the lead on the show, and she's this mom who's made a lot of sacrifices for her family and does a lot of immoral things, and mm. uh, she decides to seduce the new hot priest. So she does. She, and, al- she almost can't help it. It's like, yeah. oh, I gotta do something really awful just today. just gotta seduce this priest. Yeah. And Nathan Fillion's just like, well, I probably shouldn't, but okay, okay. And uh, it gets crazy, though. He's on like a three-episode arc. Like she sleeps with him, but then it turns out you know he's married, mm. and uh, his wife comes to town, and he doesn't know. Then Dana Delaney's just like, "Well, just lie," and he's like, <laughs> "I'm a priest, and you had an affair. That's not very priestly. So just keep it up, lie." And much to her shock and horror, 
He has a conscience and he tells his wife <laughs> and he tells her husband and it's a whole thing. He just breaks the rules of soap opera. The one cardinal rule of soap opera is you keep a secret per- as long as... You, perpetuate the vice as long you, as you can. You keep a secret as long as you possibly can mm. until you finally reveal the lie at the worst possible moment. And he just does it right away. And he's really, really funny and he got this good sense of guilt to him too. He's hilarious in it. Anyway, really, really good... Uh, uh, early role from him, and also a really good show. Uh, next up, we have Best Guest Star. Mm. Uh, these are actors who come in for a quick episode, or maybe a two or three episode arc, and then they fuck right off. And they just they do their mm. job, and they get out, and they're wonderful. Yeah. So let's talk about our nominees. Uh, first off, we have, from the curious creations of Christine McConnell... Dina Von Teese. <laughs> this got a, a nod for me just because that's so weird. <laughs> uh, Dina Von Teese is the world's best known burlesque performer. Uh, somebody's got to be the most famous. Uh, she's performed at the Crazy Horse in Paris. Uh, she's performed. Uh, you know, she has her own clothing line. She's performed and like mm-hmm. taught workshops on burlesque. Uh, she's a really, really famous model. You know Dita Von Teese. Yeah. If you know anything about uh, stripping or burlesque, you know Dita Von Teese. And she shows up in a show that is not necessarily for kids, but is kid-facing. Yeah, it's uh, Christine McConnell is a woman who makes like kind of spooky-themed desserts and treats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and but it's more on like the sculpting bent than it is on the baking bent. Yeah, it's more about, like, okay, you, you know how to make a cake. I'll show you how to make it look like a spooky gothic castle, like that kind of thing. And so she had her own it, show on Netflix. There's no practical advice in this show. None whatsoever. None. Wait, so you, <laughs> there was unless, no help. <laughs> unless you have, like, a, an, a, like, edible frosting in a, yeah. in an air uh, air spraying paintbrush yeah. and like a pound of isomalt and and a whole week to sculpt things out of frosting that you're yeah. never going to eat like the food doesn't look good because it looks it's always like you're it looks walking, like a sculpture it always looks like you're walking in on the last 5 minutes of a bob ross show and the painting's already done yeah, and he's yeah, just yeah. wrapping things up and and so, uh, and so all we just do is we add a little extra fine and finishing touch here to the trees and like wait whoa whoa i missed all the what do i do how, how do I do this? How do I prop that cake up? What, so what's weird. the consistency? How do I get the dye? Like, nothing you can actually do at home. And on top of the show is also, she's got puppets, mm. and they're all, like, spooky puppets, like a mummified cat. They're like the peanut gallery. They were all yeah. like running commentary. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and Dina Von Teese, isn't she, like, does she have a magic mirror? She She's a ghost. She's, she's a ghost. Uh, um, uh, the ghost of a wrong murdered woman who uh, Christine McConnell sees in her mirror, and who emerges in, like, two and a half episodes. Like, there's a Halloween episode where she has a date with another corpse. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Uh, And, yeah, then she just sort of says, oh, and men, they're so horrible. By the way, teach them how to make a dress. And Christine McConnell turns to the camera. Here's how you make a gothic dress. Dina Von Teese is in there just look, looking in... <laughs> like okay how do i get uh, what measurements do i take how do, do i, I do a pattern no it's just nah. here's how to make spider webs anyway, um so that's a really really good one uh next up uh we have a, another uh nomination for agent x another show we didn't quite like but there was one thing we did like on it where there was actually a cameo by a star of a famous action series that was way better than agent x fred dreyer from hunter 
Uh, it was a hit series in the 1980s. Doesn't get talked about very much anymore. But Fred Dreyer shows up as basically Hunter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of reprising the role of Hunter. Yeah, uh, he plays a character who used to be Agent X, the secret guy working for the vice president. And uh, he gets pulled out of retirement along with another old guy to do everything the young guy does. But they're old and they're persnickety and they argue a lot. And it's such a better show. <laughs> I just want to see those just guys. About those guys. Yeah. I want to see those guys in mm. a show. I don't care about Agent X. You can keep Sharon Stone. Just give mm. her something to do. <laughs> uh, I don't have much more to say about it other than it was cool to see Fred Dreyer again. And briefly, Agent X worked. Damn shame. When, when it wasn't following its actual premise. Uh, our it's next, un- yet another waste of that show, golly. Uh, another nominee uh, from a show with a ton of guest stars. In fact, every episode had a guest star. Mm. Julie's Green Room. I'm curious why, out of all the guest stars mm. on Julie's Green Room, you nominated David Hyde Pierce. Well, all of the guest stars on Julie's Green Room were playing themselves. Uh, yes. We had people to like. Oh, except for um, at the end. What's her name? Miss Brightly. Oh, uh, uh, um, uh, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett plays Carol a character. Carol Burnett pl- plays a character, but uh, all, the other, else all the other big themselves. celebrities, yeah, played themselves. Uh, but they were there in sort of an educational capacity. They weren't yeah. playing characters. Yeah, Alec Baldwin uh, shows up as Alec Baldwin to teach kids about acting. Yeah. Uh, uh, who, oh, gosh, who was Adina the, Menzel shows Adina up Menzel, to teach about was, singing. The, who was the improv teacher? It was, uh, oh, it was the girl from uh, Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, El, El, Ellie Kemper? Ellie Kemper. Ellie Kemper. Yeah. Uh, Josh Groban was there to talk about yeah. singing, and they're all very. Yes. They're, they saved the music. They saved the music. <laughs> improv saves the day. <laughs> uh, but uh, the one that really stood out for me was David Hyde Pierce because he plays the director. Now, of course, he hasn't been here directing the play that they've been working on over the course of the season. He only shows up in the one episode to sort of talk a little bit about mm. directing. And to walk him through the dress rehearsal. But he actually like, yeah. had a shtick, which I appreciated. He was he was playing the David Hyde Pierce shtick. He was yeah. kind of a nervous guy who didn't quite understand what was going on around him, but got really freaked out when everything started falling apart, as it inevitably, inevitably did. He is a great straight man. He has some of the best deadpan mm-hmm. you've seen in comedy. Yeah, you know him from Frasier. There's a reason he won all if, those Emmys. He's brilliant. Yeah, I, I think he would actually do pretty good as a Buster Keaton. Oh, yeah, he would, actually. <laughs> I could see that. And and he, he just stood out just because he was so bloody funny in, yeah. in his episode. Yeah, he's he's maybe not my favorite, but he's right up there, and he was mm-hmm. really great. And I actually didn't realize how extensively he'd done directing. So well, I learned something di- about David Pierce, Also, too. he's directed a yeah. lot of theater. I always thought of him as more of an actor, so it was exciting mm-hmm. to see that different side of him. Uh, next up, someone we've already talked about, so I'll make it pretty quick. Uh, on Deadly Class, mm-hmm. uh, we had a lot of teachers who were like, you know, cool get actors who just teach you about something evil. Uh, we talked about Henry Rollins. I didn't nominate Henry Rollins. I did nominate French Stewart. Keeps popping up. French Stewart plays the Hannibal Lecter role, who starts teaching the kids. And he's there, and he's in, like, a wheelchair, and he's got, like, that thing on his face, and he's all, like, they're keeping him. Because the implication is that if we let him go, he would just stab everybody. <laughs> but uh, he's teaching the kids psychology. So you get to learn psychology from Hannibal Lecter. And he's played by that guy from Third Rock from the Sun, which is actually against type, which is kind of fun. Well, French Stewart is actually quite a a versatile comedian. He just was sort of pigeonholed as this goofy alien guy who was always squinting on Third Rock from the Sun. That was his big hit. He Mm -hmm. doesn't ever have to work again. I'm sure he's still getting royalties from that show. Probably doing fine. Uh, But, you know, he's he's a working actor. He wants to work. And, uh, yeah, I think... 
he did display a good deal of range and gave a very good performance. There's that, a so. there's a good bit where they uh, they have to uh, free him from the school where he's been imprisoned to teach. Uh, in order to help them solve, like, you know, some one of our friends is missing, you, you know where he is, or mm. you can figure out the clues. And he just, they have to keep him on a leash, because mm. <laughs> they can't let him free. <laughs> He's really funny. Um, anyway, it's cool stuff. Um, our top- you ever, did, did you ever see Love Stinks? No. The, the feature film of French Stewart? No, I heard it wasn't good. Mm. It's not that great. There's a, a stunk. A, a, he, he and his... Uh, he and his girlfriend are, are on the cusp of getting married. He doesn't want to marry her. She, mm. and they end up. It ends up turning into this big sort of bitter war where they start like wrecking each other's houses and stuff. It's not yeah. very good. Right. Uh, but there's a bit where she puts like hair remover in his shampoo and he goes to work bald. Ah. And he's really embarrassed. He kind of walks in. He walks in the room bald, and he works in a writer's room. So all of his friends are comedy writers. Oh, so they'll have stick. He, he walks in and. He's bald, and they all kind of look at him, and you can tell they're just like thinking, thinking of the jokes. Yeah, and in a really sublime bit of comedy, he looks at his watch. He says, "You all have thirty seconds. Go." <laughs> <laughs> and all simultaneously, they just start throwing out all his bald jokes, and then he says, "Your good. time's up." And they all shut up. Okay, now we get to work. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's a good bit. It's a good. Bit. All right, our uh, mm-hmm. top two is practically a tie. Uh, they're so they're such different roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, essentially our runner-up is Jane Lynch in Tuca and Birdie, which is a show I'm actually weirded out that we haven't mentioned yet because it's so damn good. Uh, Tuca and Birdie is an animated series. Uh, it aired on Netflix. was tragically canceled after one season, and it was Al- about... Ali Wong and Tiffany Haddish play mm-hmm. bird people in yeah. bird world. Yeah, not unlike BoJack Horseman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, It's an anthropomorphic world, but everything in the entire world is anthropomorphic. The buildings are anthropomorphic. Yeah, the, 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 the subway, subway is, is a living snake that you climb inside of. Yeah, and you're there, and it's guts as you take around. It's a really wonderfully wonderful creation. One of the fascinating things about Tuca and Birdie is that it starts off just being really funny. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's super funny. And just weird, absurd. Yeah, and, yeah, it's great. But one of the most amazing things about Tuca and Birdie is that very quickly you start realizing that although a lot of the jokes are surreal and off the cuff, the actual content of the show is actually extremely thoughtful and intensely dramatic and psychologically genuine. And it is about dealing, dealing with anxiety and, and fear and, and trauma. trauma in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really fascinating and really incredible. And I cried watching the show. It's so damn good. And there's an episode towards the end of the series where we find out that Bertie. Uh, had a really traumatic incident in her childhood, and mm. she goes back to her hometown, and there she meets... Her old gym teacher. Her old gym teacher, who was always wondering why she never pursued... Swimming. Uh, swimming, yeah. which was her great passion, and it turns out the reason why ties into this great trauma. I'm not going to go into great detail, because I don't want to ruin the show. It's intense and beautifully done and sad and so damn good. Mm. Tell me why you really, you, you really focus on Jane Lynch. Well, Jane Lynch is... Uh, if, if you will, the linchpin of the show. She uh, kind of is the one to reveal... What, what happens is, you know, she has to confront something, uh, the, the main character has to confront something, and uh, it doesn't happen uh, back in the usual settings. It's not yeah. back in her apartment. It's not back where most yeah. of the, the series takes place. It's in kind of this farm removed place out by a lake somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Jane Lynch emerges and plays very deftly a character who's very, very funny, who's very, very strong, and who's uh, very emotionally open in a way a lot of the people in the city aren't. 
Mm. And so she actually ends up being kind of like the the guide through a lot of the characters' emotional journeys, like leading them up to the precipice and helping them through. Meanwhile, she's such a badass that she fights a <laughs> crab monster. <laughs> Like the first time we see her, it's uh, the two main characters are wandering through like an old mall that's now abandoned that they used to hang around in when they were teenagers, and then Jane Lynch comes up on a motorcycle. It's like, yeah, get on, get on the back of my motorcycle. I'll take you back to meet my wife. It's awesome, and her, and her wife is played by Isabella Rossellini. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> so damn cool. It's like, and I'm going to teach you how to sculpt an egg. Oh, this is awesome. Right, and, and, but so, it's not so just, it's, but it's not just a cool Jane Lynch cameo. She has this tendency to pop up in things as like a really strong, confident badass or mm. someone who's just really funny, or both, as, mm. as is often the case. And Duke and Bertie, you actually really get a sense of her relationship with her wife and why it is so... Mm. Well, it's warm and important. Yeah, yeah. And, and how that contrasts with the relationships that Duke and Bertie have with each other and also, uh, in Kate Bertie's case, with her boyfriend. And it's a really important character in a really important role. And you're right, it's really, really mm. excellent. And it couldn't be more different... From our ult- from our ultimate winner, but this is essentially a tie, um, because we picked Bruce Campbell in American Gothic, the original American <laughs> Gothic, the one from nineteen ninety five. We reviewed two different series based on the uh, called American Gothic, mm. have nothing to do with each other. One was from nineteen ninety five, and it's the one with Gary Cole where he plays like the evil, possibly satanic sheriff of a small town. Most of the episodes revolve around the plot of this young boy and who will save or steal his soul. Mm. There are also done-in-one monster episodes, and there are done-in-one crime episodes it's, that feel like a Tales from the Crypt sort of thing, where the other characters are just sort of around this week. And there's one in particular This is really, really fun. Uh, American Gothic was executive produced by uh, Sam Raimi and his mm. usual uh, uh, cabal of co-creators. And uh, as a result, we see some of his regulars. Ted Raimi shows up in an episode, and so does Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell shows up as, like, an alternate-slash-good version of Gary Cole. Mm. Usually Gary Cole can talk rings around everybody. Everybody is, like, super intimidated by him. And then Bruce Campbell shows up as an FBI agent who sees through all of his bullshit and might actually be the guy we totally need to clean up this town and, like, won't be fooled by Gary Cole at all. And maybe he's enough of a badass. And nope, he is going to get eaten alive by bugs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in a really like, gruesome and terrifying ending in which everyone could save him even characters who are generally decent people could save him and they just don't <laughs> it's really fucked up <laughs> uh, Bruce Campbell uh, first of all he he is he has no illusions about what he is. Uh, no, he he's knows. very open about the fact that he's just sort of this blue-collar working actor who isn't even that good an actor. He said it himself. I, I, that dis- he's not I a dispute good actor. that he might not be the greatest actor of his generation, but I think he can do good acting. Bubba Hotep, he's great. He he can act very well. More importantly, he's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, he is so so funny. He's a good looking guy. Mm-hmm. He uh, knows he's... how to put on exactly the right air mm. of snide coolness that you want to see him get the shit kicked out of him, <laughs> and then it will be funny. Yeah, and that and that's and that's not just the Evil Dead movies that uh, yeah. these are a lot of his career brought up. That's a lot of his career. <laughs> uh, and in fact, he's he was taking the piss out of himself when yeah. he was directing his own movies, like My Name Is Bruce. Uh, here, so you get a little bit of like cult cred with uh, with Bruce Campbell, but at the same time, he's such a, a pathetically hilarious sad sack that it kind of makes sense that he'd get eaten by bugs. 
Anyway, it's Bruce, a real treat. When, you know, when Bruce Campbell finally passes away at the age of 180, because uh, he's going he's gonna to live that long. Uh, Come on, Bruce. It, and, and it's not going to be of old age. It's going to be because he got eaten by scarabs. <laughs> when that happens, we'll look back fondly on this yeah. episode. Yeah. Uh, moving on, we got Best Supporting Actor. Now, once again, when we do these kinds of awards, we don't separate the categories uh, by gender. We just look at size of the role. Mm. Uh, so these people who are not ostensibly the protagonists of the series, but they made a huge impact and they gave a great performance. Mm. Uh, we have two nominees from the same series. <laughs> so let's just talk about them both. Yeah. Uh, Holly Hunter and Sosie Bacon in Here and Now. Yeah. Uh, I championed Sosie Bacon. You championed Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter Why specifically yeah. Holly Hunter? Holly Hunter was, uh, I, again, this is kind of like the, the Jane Lynch film. She was the, kind of the moral center of the show. Mm-hmm. She was the one who did the least despicable things of all of the characters. <laughs> all, the, all the other characters kind of struggling through a lot of moral problems, and a lot of them were making really bad decisions and saying really horrible things and dealing with things in a really bad way. I feel like uh, Holly Hunter was, she's the matriarch of the family, is mm-hmm. uh, the one who was kind of the aggrieved party of most of this. Yeah, people like have cheated mm. on her and she finds out and it breaks her heart and, and, and like, her th- kids are in trouble and nobody listens to her. Like, she's and- in a lot of trouble because she said something on the news but it was clearly taken like really far out of context mm-hmm. so now now she's like... Become this pariah yeah, of the she's, liberal she's been a pariah movement. but she's not yeah, she's clearly not guilty of doing anything really wrong. It was really just she was misquoted. Uh so I and uh, also Holly Hunter is just amazing. She yeah. really kind of pulls out a lot of the important outrage and gives the the, uh, the TV series a, a lot of the emotional beats that I think it really hinged on. Yeah, uh, I I admired Here and Now for trying to give us well the Here and Now like dealing <laughs> with today like political uh, the political landscape as it appears today like yeah. the year it was the day it was made yeah. without try, without sort of comforting hindsight without putting in yeah. anything into context mm-hmm. and uh, it's I, nothing but volcanoes it, it didn't <laughs> and, and also a volcano curiously <laughs> enough uh, but uh, Holly Hunter I think really kind of understood that and understood that everything's really immediate about this and gave and sort of adjusted her performance she just gave a really great performance fair enough uh, Sosie Bacon in here and now plays Holly Hunter's daughter um, and she is the youngest member of this very unusual family where people uh, grew up from different circumstances. They uh, came together at different times in their lives. And everyone else has this, like, identity. Mm. And she doesn't feel like she has one. Everyone else is like, you know, oh, I came from this part of the world. And on their travels, they found me and realized I was in dire straits and they adopted me. And same over here. And she was just like, and I was born in the suburbs and I'm white. Mm. <laughs> and it's her just trying to figure out who she is in a family that has no clear-cut identity in a in a environment that gives her very few opportunities to strike out and make a name for herself. And I think Sosie Bacon really understands how to do that. I think she understands how to how to illustrate the like honest sort of innocent qualities mm. of that but also the shitty entitled qualities too yeah where, like she, yeah. she she knows that she's also not always a good person and i think um it's the kind of role that in like a lesser actor's hands could have either been like so nice it completely negates the contradictions in the character or could have been so wicked that we had no interest in following her story and i think Sosie bacon really uh follows it really well 
Okay, uh, that's, that's that's fair. Yeah. Uh, next up, you had a great nominee mm. that I almost picked myself. Mm. Uh, you picked Miguel Ferrer in Badlands 2005. Uh, I, we talked about Badlands 2005. It's it's the the Mad Max knockoff. Only it has a robot, and Miguel <laughs> Ferrer is the robot. And the great thing about Miguel Ferrer <laughs> is that um, he he plays perfectly well counterpoint to the kind of forgettable lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lead act, as we said, the lead actor is kind of like a Han Solo type. He's this like ne'er do well, roguish, charming guy who can talk his way out of situations in, in such a way that it's he's not interesting, right? Uh, Miguel Ferrer is the robot who's there to sort of keep him in line and quote regulations and do some of the more dangerous things. But he really seems a little bit hurt when people don't listen to him. Yeah. Miguel like, Ferrer he, never he, phoned in a single performance in yeah, his whole fucking career. He's not like a fastidious you know, C-3PO type where he's just sort of persnickety and rules oriented. He respects the rules. Why aren't you following the rules? That hurts. That hurts me personally. And I like he's how like, he has the kind of puppy dog quality as the android. There's this I, fun bit, but he's where, still like this badass who kills people. Well, there's this fun bit also where like he's you know he's an android and his parts are kind of interchangeable. Oh no, mm. I lost my arm. And he talks about I liked that arm. That mm. was the best arm I ever had. And then they give him another arm. It's like an inch longer. He's like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Something just like a unique experience that no other character can have. And he, yeah, he plays it really great. He's mm. Miguel Ferrer. He's a, He's a god. He's a, he was so great. He's one of the best. Um, I wanted to pick. I wanted to make sure I highlighted this character. I made a mental note that we needed to nominate this actor mm. early on in the season of Cancelled Too Soon because they were in a show that was supposed to be funny and it mostly wasn't funny except when she was in it. <laughs> it's Julia Duffy and Wizards and Warriors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julia Duffy is the MVP of Wizards and Warriors. Well, Julia, and we've seen Julia Duffy before because Julia Duffy was also in The Last Precinct. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, mm. Julia Duffy is an actor who doesn't get enough talk about, doesn't get enough play. She is, in Wizards and Warriors, the Madeline Kahn character. Mm. Yeah. They clearly wanted someone like Madeline Kahn, but the thing with Madeline Kahn is that she is one of the great mm. comedy geniuses of her generation. Excuse me, she wasn't in The yeah, Last Precinct. I think I know what you're thinking yeah, of, and no, I, I thought it looked like her. I was mm. taking your word for it, and no, I'll never do that I, again. I, I was incorrect. I, I will never do that again. Uh, but yeah, Julia Duffy has the responsibility of being as funny as Madeline Kahn in a movie that is less funny than any movie Madeline Kahn ever made. A TV series. A TV series less funny than any movie Madeline Kahn ever made. And she's as funny as Madeline Kahn. (laughs) She's great. She knows how to play up the vanity. She knows how to play up the jokes. She knows how to play up the sexiness when the moment it calls for it. She is the ultimate dippy princess. She's hilarious in every scene. she's stuck in this obscure... Crappy, not funny sitcom. I know it's with, so with knights sad. And wizards in She's it. amazing in it. Like she is absolutely the perfect funny princess mm. from a fairy tale, and almost no one will ever see her. <laughs> it's a real <laughs> damn shame because she's great in mm. it. Um, so, but our number one, and this is one we actually agreed on. Surprise, hmm. uh, is an actor who was in a very large ensemble series, and. Stood out so much despite the giant cast he was in that it felt like his show. It's John Cho in Flash Forward. Uh, John Cho is a national fucking treasure. Yeah, he um, is. He is. He is an amazing actor in everything. I've not seen him uh, be bad, even when he's playing like little bit, like even when he's like the milf guy. Yeah, it's like okay, he's a funny milf guy. Yeah, he's he, he's he decided to play the funniest best milf guy he could. <laughs> 
And uh, John Cho uh, in Flash Forward plays of uh, one of the feds, and the uh, his through line on the show is that when he passed out and had his flash forward and you know, saw his own future was he actually didn't see anything, and he quickly came to the conclusion that he was going to be dead by the in, within the next six months, and yeah. that weighed heavily on him. And he had a, a fiance played by Gabrielle Union, who was. Uh, really excited about their upcoming nuptials, and yeah, because and, she in her future she yeah. saw that they were getting married, and it and turns so, out she might have seen his funeral. And all instead. of this is weighing on him. And John Cho is such a savvy actor that he communicates everything he needs to with a look mm-hmm. or a single line delivery mm-hmm. that we actually get an entire arc without reams and reams of dialogue about how he's explaining his feelings. No, and what's great is that over the course of the series, he actually is on screen enough and he's doing so many different things Mm. that he can really explore the variety of different ways that people sometimes process trauma. Or or grief, yeah, he's going through the stages of grief. He's grieving his own life. So, like, he's sad, he's angry, he just wants to focus on work, he wants to do anything but focus on work, and rather than have this be, like, a character who just doesn't feel very focused... You understand that his focus is on this one thing, and it is an emotional roller coaster for mm. him. That's tricky to do in a show where you only have so many scenes per week. You're battling for screen time with every other person. John Cho is a legend. We mm-hmm. just love John Cho, and this this series just shows why he is one of the most underappreciated actors in Hollywood. Uh, next up, we have best lead actor. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Best lead actor, uh, a, a ton of great nominees, people we didn't even, uh, uh, weren't even able to fit in there, and I don't know how we managed. Uh, I want to talk uh, this, about this your... This is hard to do, so is, I, I, I kind of, I, I feel weird about my nominees just because... I, I fully support one of your nominees, uh, one of them I'm not entirely sure why you put there, so let's just start here. All right. Michael Gross in Tremors the series. Because Burt Gummer is an important character. I'll just say it. I'll say it. I, I make no bones about this. Yeah. I think I think Burt Gummer, just like uh, Ash in the Evil Dead series, is one of the great horror heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a really distinct character. Michael Gross has made it his own over the course of how many? Seven films now? Uh, and a TV series? Six. I think six in a TV series. Six in a TV series? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Burt Gummer is this really kind of strange survivalist gun nut mm-hmm. who is really antisocial. He hates people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's against the government. Yeah, he's, he's extremely conservative. He's ex- extremely conservative. He believes in violence. He believes in all of this like, crazy conspiracy yeah. Seems like the shit. kind of person that a lot of people wouldn't like to be around in person. And yet he is the warmest, most lovable, most approachable, most likable <laughs> character. What a wonderful, what yeah. a wonderful creation Burt Gummer is. Now, to be fair, Burt Gummer was conceived of in a series of films before he showed up in Tremors the Series, but I feel mm. like Tremors the Series was when Michael Gross really got to have it be his. The, yeah. the, the film series had become Burt Gummer's uh, by, by the third, the one, third film. The third one, they finally admitted he was the star. He was the star. But yeah, yeah here he, we get to see him on a weekly basis. This is the Burt Gummer, sh- Gummer show. I think his highlight in this show is because Burt Gummer's usually the one who thinks, ah, it's a government conspiracy to keep the graboids, blah blah Or they're just trying to hide all their UFO technology. He's that kind of guy. Mm. There's this one episode where for Dean Norris, he actually has to go to another town to like investigate what may be more graboids. Mm-hmm. 
and everyone in this town assumes he's a federal agent because of this. <laughs> they and think he's, he's become, the government. Yeah. He's become the man, and he's trying to talk sense into conspiracy theorists, and this breaks his brain. <laughs> it's hilarious. It is easily the best episode of the show. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. The show is pretty good. It's not great. It's no, pretty good. There's but... a lot of episodes that are kind of just junk that you'd watch mm. on a Saturday afternoon. And, and unfortunately, the last few episodes, Burt Gummer isn't in them for some reason. Oh, I, I guess know, Michael Gross was busy. But... And they added this like new, like annoying, nerdy fanboy mm. fan service character in there, which is just like, it was total... it's the first season. We don't need Cousin Oliver yet. It was, like, it what was did you totally do? death. Yeah, yeah. This, the series didn't end well, but when Burt Gummer was on mm. screen, you're right. It did anchor yeah, my, the series, my, Michael yeah. Gross, uh, he, the role is his now. Mm-hmm. It's an important role in terms in the annals of horror history. And yeah. I think it should be celebrated. Well, I think it's inter- I think there's something that I think a lot of award shows tend to do, which is they tend to only celebrate the same kind of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you and I are at least trying to celebrate different kinds of performances. Like what Michael Gross does in Tremors is very, very different than what our next nominee does, uh, James Nesbitt in Jekyll. Okay, yeah. Yeah, James Nesbitt. Jekyll is a series that actually has, actually like... actually nominated James Nesbitt. Je- well, so damn he's good, nominated. Yeah. He's nominated. James mm-hmm. Nesbitt. Jekyll is a series that has a lot of fans. Uh, it was created by the same people who, like, did the modern update of Sherlock with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, when we rewatched... When I rewatched Jekyll, when you watched it for the first time, we discovered that it doesn't really hold together terribly well. Mm-hmm. But the thing that makes it work is James Nesbitt as Jekyll. James Nesbitt is a respected and, and character. Hyde. And Hyde. <laughs> uh, James Nesbitt is a respected character actor. You probably know him from the Hobbit movies. Uh, but what's really, really fascinating is how distinctly he is able to differentiate between Jekyll and Hyde with very little physical differentiation. Like, they do his hair a little differently. His hair, That's his, it. his brows, but yeah. Yeah, um, like, just just a teensy hmm. bit. But it's all a matter of confidence. And in fact, we've actually nominated and maybe even awarded another Dr. Jekyll performance before. We did. Yeah. We did. But it's such a good role when done right. And James Nesbitt, in this series, has an opportunity to do so much more with Jekyll and Hyde than so many other people did. He gets to investigate more about Jekyll's life. And Jekyll isn't just, like, this dweeby... A uh, character who gets to completely explode his id when he becomes Hyde. He's actually a family man who's actually interesting enough to carry a show on his own. Mm-hmm. And then Hyde actually has multifaceted elements to him where they talk about how something he's, of an ethos. He's he not has, just a, he has a an monster. ethos. He actually we realize is that his evil comes from a sort of childlike wonder where he's naive and hasn't experienced the world very much and he mm-hmm. just feels everything so much stronger and that can actually also mean he feels love that much stronger too mm-hmm. and he can actually <laughs> form really good relationships with people it's a really interesting character in a show that is way over plotted it only ran six episodes and has like four seasons worth of story. It's way and these, too much. We like, did not need that much. Je- Jekyll making psychic waves and it's sarcophaguses so- and the, the identity of his mother. There's, and there's some this. good stuff in there, but man, is it just completely gets mm. head way up its ass with plot. What the real focus is James Nesbitt's performance, which is next level good. Hmm. and really deserves to be remembered, even if the show itself maybe isn't quite as good as its reputation. Uh, Next up, we have uh, one of the great actors of our time, Jean-Claude Van Damme, in Jean-Claude Van Johnson. (laughs) 
as Jean Claude Van Damme and Jean Claude Van Johnson. Yes. And and what was it? Pe- oh, <laughs> uh, Remy or whatever his name like was. Pepe or something. Pe- Pepe. Yeah, he, the, he and and the, another character plays the random guy who just looks like Jean Claude. And, and another Jean Claude Van Damme. He also plays yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ! He's yeah. a racist guy. Alec Guinness and kind yeah. hearts and coronets. I I remember when JCVD came out, and this is what a lot of uh, critics noticed at the time was that you look at people like. Uh, Stallone. Stallone always had a little bit of soulfulness about him, even though he kind of played these meathead characters. Well, uh, in his dramas, the, he did. His yeah. action movies, maybe less so, like his Rambo yeah, yeah, sequels. Ra- but the Rambo like sequels, Cobra, nothing. But yeah, yeah. But oh was, gosh, don't watch Cobra. But um, <laughs> Cobra's fine. There's stuff uh, I like in Cobra. It's Cobra, a stupid movie. Cobra's, but... uh, um, I haven't seen Over the Top. That that's a whole oh, I haven't in, seen in that my since I was a kid. 80s film education. Yeah. Uh, Schwarzenegger, never good actor. I think he would admit that as well. Like he, he's he, been he's been well cast. He's been well cast. Like. When Terminator a, 2 is the best he will ever be, probably. Yeah, if, if it's you need exactly a, his wheelhouse. If you need a gigantic death robot, then yes, Schwarzenegger's your man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jean-Claude and Steven Seagal don't even talk about it. Uh, Jean, <laughs> Jean-Claude, because he was always playing himself. Uh, yeah, Jean, yeah, yeah, no, Jean-Claude no. Van Damme is one of those, uh, one of the only kind of like big male action stars of that generation that actually bothered to hone his craft over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, maybe, He's a better actor now than he was yeah. in his heyday. Yeah, you watch Bloodsport, <laughs> he gets the job done, he but he's not done. good. Yeah, uh, you watch him now, ah, like yeah. he, like he he bears so much weight in every crag on his face mm-hmm. at, that he, he like he looks at the the camera and we, and just sort of realizes that he does carry a lot of pathos and he's really aware of how much pathos he carries. All of that is, is readable on his, and in this, his performance, he's actually a really good actor now. No, he is. He, uh, he, and he gets the pathos. He's also incredibly funny. I'm not sure if you realized at some point in his career that, well, I can only do kickboxing for so long. You know, that's not mm-hmm. going to carry a whole career for decades. How long can the kickboxing trend really last? Well, he does a lot of straight-to-video action movies now, but like yeah. a lot of actors, when they start hitting that straight-to-video action van, they start using more body doubles, yeah. more, more fancy editing. Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert even noticed that about Steven Seagal. It's oh, like yeah. a, they're filming him in shadow, and there's Steven a long Seagal shots. Steven Seagal hasn't and, done yeah. like a real action mm-hmm. sequence in a long, a long, long time. time. And uh, in fact, in in the movie JCVD, the, it opens with they're shooting a movie within the movie, and, oh, yeah. and he's missing punches, and they're trying to do this like big long one take thing, and you can see him getting more and more exhausted. Yeah, because you know he's in his late forties now; he can't do it the same way he did when he was twenty one. And so he even stops to the director. He's like, look, I, I understand that you want me to do all these fights, but it's hard to do in one shot. <laughs> and the director's there like playing a Game Boy. Okay, just do it again. <laughs> like, and, and he's just wounded. He's hurt. And you realize that he just doesn't really understand. Nobody really understands what he went through to do what he did because yeah. he's not taken seriously anymore. And right. that he's really working hard now to pull and, that out. And it's something that I think Jason, uh, Jonathan Van Johnson understands is that, okay, he's made a lot of money. He's been in star of hit movies. And yet, because even after all of that, even in his heyday, he was a little bit of a joke. Yeah. Like he was never in a particularly classic movie. He was never particularly respected. People just enjoyed watching him do stuff. Mm. And as a result, we can sympathize with him a little more easily than we could if, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger made a TV show about how hard it is to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. It's a different thing. And I think Jean-Claude Van Damme is incredibly honest in this series about what a joke his career has been. Mm. But he also knows it's funny. 
<laughs> and he really nails it. He understands when it's to be little, funny, little when absurd, to be sad, yeah. and he really finds exactly the right balance. It's a role that is very specifically tailored to him, which I think is why it's not our our winner. Mm. But he's undeniably great in it. He was mm. given, and not everyone can play themselves. It's not as hard. It's not as easy as you'd think. Um. You have to be willing to be honest, and kudos to Jonathan Van Damme for being that honest. Um, our next runner-up is someone who I'm actually a little surprised isn't our winner, because I think she's amazing, and I think she's especially amazing in this show. It's Dana Delaney in Pasadena. Mm. Uh, she could have easily been the winner. She's um, she's just fucking amazing. Look, Dana Delaney uh, was preparing her whole career to play the lead in a soap opera, yeah. and just she understands vicious seductive matriarch yeah better than just about anyway she's like she's got joan collins energy exactly and like a lot of this show is based off of uh at some point in this really rich affluent family uh in pasadena's history they may have killed someone and hid the body Mm. (laughs) and their youngest daughter finds out about this mystery and she's trying to unlock its secrets and she discovers that her mother may be evil as Fuck. <laughs> and indeed, her mother does some horrible things. She drugs her daughter, and she like tries to seduce her daughter's boyfriend, and she just does really <laughs> wicked things. As we mentioned, she, she tries to seduce a clergyman. And she successfully seduces yeah. a clergyman. <laughs> and yet, we still care about her. We still sympathize mm-hmm. with her, and she actually is able to articulate... Why she does what she does, how she's become the person she is, in a way that makes her feel a lot like a cartoon soap opera supervillain, mm. but like a actual tragic person who has just completely fallen from grace and is aware of that and has made her choices. And I have my values. I chose to do these horrible things in order to protect these things that I care about. And that makes me a bad person, but at least I have these things I care about. That is difficult to pull off and make us revel in their villainy. And also like them. Mm. And I don't think even Joan Collins was always very good at that. Like, Dana Delaney nails it <laughs> in this show. But the winner, and I totally support this, I, I also voted for it, and it's a, it's a role that, again, when you hear about the show, you think there's no way in hell that's going to be good. Mm. But then you watch Still Starcrossed, and you see Lashana Lynch play Rosaline. She's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's another one of those, like, that Emily Stone moment. It's like, okay, if her career doesn't pick up, it'll be a, a complete mystery. Yeah. Because people should not be sleeping on Lashana Lynch. It happens once and, in a while. Yeah. Like, you'll watch an old show and you'll be like, how did this person not become a star? And you have no fucking mm-hmm. idea. Fortunately, Lashana Lynch, you know, she was in Captain Marvel. She's going to be in James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Oh, that's right. She, but, was, she was Captain Marvel's girlfriend. Uh, yeah, it was subtextual, but yeah. If you, were, were, if you want to say it's subtextual, I, they, they didn't come out and say it. They should have. Yeah, but it's pretty clear what they meant. Um, but yeah, she's she plays Rosaline again. Rosaline is a character who only existed as a plot point mm-hmm. in Shakespeare's text. She was the person Romeo was in love with until he met Juliet. Juliet was so amazing and special that he forgot all about Rosaline. And we see in Still Starcrossed how Rosaline is way more interesting than Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> she's actually got way more going on. She's got she's got this kind of like um almost like a Bronte novel kind of thing going mm. where like she should be part of high society but then her family died and now she's acting as a servant in the Monte in the Capulet house. Right, right. It's so fucking great. Um and she gets to like 
do all this really fun stuff, like uncover secret cabals, and she's. I think I think they're going to force her to marry Benvolio. Is that where I remember that correctly? Oh, yeah, it was and Benvolio, he's a, and he's, he's a dumbass. Yeah. So, but who also, but a dumbass who has a good heart though, and so they actually contrast well because she's very intelligent. Mm. She's just great. She really captivates in a again in a show that should be dumb. <laughs> it's like remember when we reviewed that that series Will, which is all about William Shakespeare's like early career and how, and how was, it was dumb. How was this stupid stud boy who was, yeah invented uh, the prequel like oh God and, and God. singing along to like London Calling and, and iambic shit, pentameter yeah. poetry slams like ah <laughs> makes you want to slam your head against the table. It was terrible. Everything Will wasn't Starcrossed is, hmm. and a lot of it is because Lashana Lynch is. Exactly it, who yeah. it needs, who the show needs, and mm-hmm. I'm so glad we could see more of her, and I can't wait to see her career uh, really bloom from here. Uh, next up, and we got to start moving along because it's a very long. Well, episode. one, two, three. I got four, uh, wait, five, the, five oh, categories, five remaining categories. So we're gonna, we're gonna start speeding through these, especially if we've we, already we've, talked we've about talked the show about them before. So uh, okay. best ensemble cast is our next category. Okay, and uh, and again, this is for. Uh, again, everyone, because most shows involve an ensemble cast, mm. and it's not just about one performance, it's about the chemistry of everyone involved. You had a nominee I'm a little surprised by because I was higher on the series than you. Mm. Why did you pick Whiskey Cavalier? Whiskey Cavalier, because I'm thinking of the cast of Whiskey Cavalier, and they had something that uh, I actually didn't mention at the time. I actually wasn't really high on Whiskey Cavalier until I saw Agent X, mm. because I thought Whiskey Cavalier, it's like, okay, I get it, it's a spy show, but it has sort of like an Ellie McBeal uh, angle of everybody's a little bit bantery, a little bit bickery, and they all have, like, goofy chemistry together. It wasn't extraordinary at the time. Then I saw Agent X be a spy show that had nothing. Yeah. And I, I all just of a sudden made me, you appreciate that Whiskey Cavalier was pretty good. That Whiskey Cavalier was actually doing something kind of novel. So it was all, <laughs> all came back in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking of the, the ensemble cast, not just the two uh, leads uh, played by Lauren Cohan and Scott uh, Foley. Scott Foley. Yeah. Who are and really fun and sexy and they're, they're well, they're, they're fun and sexy. And they, they have good chemistry together, but they're also really bickersome. They actually have that moonlighting dynamic down pretty well. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm thinking of the rest of the cast is like, oh yeah, they actually each had a distinct personality mm-hmm. and they played off of each other very well. Yeah, you put any two they of them were, in a scene together, you yeah. know what their relationship is going to be like and they, you know it's probably going to be fun. They clicked. I'm not saying that it's necessarily like an ensemble of huge name actors who are all working together, you know, under this huge tapestry. That's a uh, flash forward. But... Uh, <laughs> But I think Whiskey Cavalier actually nailed a really good ensemble that worked together well. Yeah. That's why I nominated Whiskey Cavalier. Uh, I 100% agree. Mm. It, it didn't make my final nominees, but it absolutely could have. It's a show that is uh, very flashy, but it's never flashy at the cost of its cast. Yeah. It knows that its cast is the real selling point, and it wants us to want to hang out with them. Like Again, mm. the whole thing with Whiskey Cavalier is... What's the spy fantasy for today? Because the spy fantasy for today can't be the fantasy it was in the 1960s, where it was all about, you know, being a misogynist who drinks himself to death and kills Russians. Like, you can't do that now. So what is it now? The idea is you have the coolest (laughs) job in the world with the coolest, sexiest people in the world. Awesome. Mm. And they do a great job of that. Uh, Moving forward, uh, flash forward. Mm. That's another one of our nominees. We've already talked about it a lot. It has a huge cast. Everyone is asked to do something really heavy. There's no character in Flash Forward who didn't see something in their future that is weighing on them. Everyone's going through a lot. But uh, in addition to that, all of the main characters are all going through a lot, and they're all pulling their weight. But uh, 
addition, it rounding out the ensemble is this huge slew of really interesting guest stars. Mm-hmm. We got Ricky J. Yeah, we Ricky got Shoray Dashlu. We, yeah, got, we got Michael Ely shows up in a couple episodes. Yeah. Uh, it, by the uh, oh gosh, who showed, who else was in that show? There's a, a like a. Um, I totally forgot the actress's name. She's like a Japanese superstar. Oh, uh, the girl like, plays Keiko. Yeah, yeah I forget her name. Um, off but yeah, she's a, a huge, huge deal in Japan. She yeah. has just sort of a supporting role on this American show. But she's really, really good. Yeah. And everyone gets their time. Everyone gets their yeah. subplot. Everyone gets their drama. And everyone makes the most of it. Uh, a lot of, in particular, flash forward because most of the characters don't have screen time together. I feel like an honorary uh, one of these like runner-up awards should go to the editors mm-hmm. of Flash Forward for keeping all those characters together, but it's really, really great. Uh, our next nominee, another show we've talked about quite a lot, Here and Now, mm-hmm. which, uh, again, the show itself is kind of hit or miss in its drama, but Alan Ball knows how to put together a great cast. Put together a great cast, and you said about Flash Forward where this entire cast is put together and they're telling their own stories sort of in their own ways and they're bringing a little bit of their own drama to this gigantic story. Mm. I feel like Here and Now is playing at a fevered pitch where everybody's not just bringing a little bit to a big story. Each character has to bring their all to this big story. They're all really playing these gigantic moments week after week and uh, you know dealing with gigantic revelations and weird political underpinnings and who am I falling in love with and what is the identity of this person and is is am I really insane? Everybody, mm-hmm. it's it's like a soap opera where everybody's just yeah, it's soap opera having the worst day of their life every week. Yeah. So, uh, and I feel like that's a different kind of ensemble acting where every character has to work that at that high high a level. Yeah, but it's really really good. We've talked about it a lot. We're going to move on. Uh, our next nominee, another one we've talked about before, Mulholland Drive. And it's a failed mm. pilot turned into a movie, but. It's not an insular pilot where there's a couple of main characters and a couple of supporting characters. It's really sprawling. Mm. And it covers so many bases. Everyone from the mystical cowboy uh, to the uh, weird coffee-spitting agents. Played by uh, and Angelo Batalamenti, the, the, yeah. the composer. Yeah, and, and, and also along with him, Dan Hidea, really wonderful character actor, just sort of there. And again, everyone, even if you only have like one line... Mm. In Mulholland Drive. You're going to make the fucking most out of that. David Lynch knows how to use an actor and get them to do something really memorable. The greatest performance of Michael Sarah's career is in Twin Peaks The Return. Okay. You've seen it, right? Oh, where he plays Wally, uh, Wally Brando. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's just... There's this really long extended scene of just Michael Sarah doing a Marlon Brando in the Wild One impersonation mm-hmm. while um, uh, Rob Forster just sort of stands there and goes, yeah. Like, like really <laughs> exasperated. Just, yeah. Yeah, you do yeah. your own thing, Michael Sarah. I'm just going to stand here and react. It's amazing. But Mulholland Drive is one of those where like literally everyone pops up in that movie mm. and they've all got odd things to say and do <laughs> and everyone's incredible in it whether they're uh, being scared to death by a weird creepy person behind a restaurant or just taking someone's order as a waitress or doing an audition or anything mm. everyone always pops yeah. and uh, it's really really great um, next up 
uh, an animated series, Tuca and Birdie. <laughs> God, I love Tuca and Birdie. Yeah. It's just a great damn series. And this one's a little hard because, you know, voice acting is a slightly different skill set than uh, acting on screen. You know, you're a lot, mm. the animators are doing uh, some of the heavy lifting. Uh, but it's absolutely worth respecting every single person who acts their heart out in Tuca and Bernie. Mm-hmm. Everyone from uh, Stephen Yen to Ali Wong to Jane Lynch to uh, Tiffany, Haddish, Tiffany yeah. Haddish, of course. Uh, like every single person is giving a novel performance that is very broad and funny and yet is entirely rooted in emotional reality mm-hmm. and. God, that's hard to do. <laughs> that's really hard to do. And yeah. kudos to the animators for doing a lot of the acting as well. That yeah. deserves a lot of the credit. Our number one pick, our winner, is a show that I'm actually surprised hasn't come up yet. Because this is one of my favorite failed pilots we've ever covered. <laughs> we've covered a lot of stupid failed pilots oh. that are a lot of fun. But this was actually a really good pilot that should have been a really good show. It's called Suburban Beat. Suburban Beat uh, is just a great idea for a show. It's so good. Yeah, it was from 1985, and uh, it was about a group of suburban moms, Mm -hmm. really kind of buttoned down, didn't have a lot to do, who decide to get together and solve crimes. Yeah, they live in a a Mm. suburb, and one of the ladies in their neighborhood has been killed. Mm. And they're just sort of busybodies, and they're played by the likes of uh, uh, D. Wallace, Wallace, Heather Langenkamp, uh-huh. uh, Patty Austin, mm. uh, and um, um, I think Shelley Fabre. Mm. And they uh, have to. Oh, and um, uh, no, that's it. That's, that's, yeah. that's the main cast. Um, yeah, and they have to solve a murder and also cook for the family <laughs> and run a small business and date mm. and it's it's on some respect it's yeah it's murder she wrote mm-hmm. on some respect yeah it's miss marple but it's a wonderful ensemble and they're all playing different wonderful characters heather langenkamp is gives my favorite heather langenkamp performance mm. in this and yeah she, <laughs> she was in two of like the best horror movies ever made she was in nightmare on elm street and west craven's new nightmare and dream warriors which mm. is also good but she gives a better performance than the other two she's a really fun actor she is hilarious in this, where she plays, like, the youngest one. Uh, you know, theoretically, she'd be the character that the showrunners would imagine have the sex appeal. Mm. She's also the one who's, like, the most naive. She's like Betty White in Golden Girls. Right. Like, she's just the one who's just completely out of touch. And she still gets to do things like get in a car chase and, like, ram people with coffins. And they're all completely out of their element. And they're all really funny all the damn time it's a really it's a it's a decent mystery mm-hmm. you know it's not the greatest mystery ever written but it's decent it's well written and the characters are wonderful and i want to see them do everything <laughs> i want to see them solve a murder every week i want this to be the most murder riddled suburb in the history of tv just because i want to see them solve crimes they just never go out into the city yeah and it's just it's so weird that this didn't get picked up it was so damn good so, seriously, you can find this online. Find it online. It's so damn good. Really, it's one of my favorite things we watched last year. All right, moving on. Weirdest series. Uh, we already... Uh, one of my nominees was Deadly Class. Uh, I think that's just because it was neither fish nor fowl. I think yeah. it, was, it was based on this uh, very punk rock-centered comic book, and it was brought to the screen by the creator of mm-hmm. said comic book. 
about trying to use this sort of school for assassins to really get under the skin and explore the actual punk rock ethos of the 1980s. It took place in this parallel universe version of the 1980s where things were even worse than they actually were. And they were it, bad. It feels like a, a like Watchmen, but without sort of any thought in its head. Yeah, without anything really to say. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah. It's, so, so it's, it's trying to be weird. It, it was a little bit too broad and expansive a premise mm-hmm. to really work as a TV show. Yeah. It just came across as something a little bit odd. So by the time we have these big kind of gang warfares between high school students, it, mm-hmm. it kind of lost the metaphor. Yeah. Uh, a, a nominee, which I we I can't in good conscience actually nominate, mm-hmm. uh, because we only saw clips of it, because the whole series doesn't seem to be online, but is worth a mention is, we've already talked about it, the reality series In Search of the Partridge Family. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, don't God. know what the fuck they were thinking. It makes no sense to make a big deal out of a reboot of the Partridge family and try to like market it to, to tween audiences who have absolutely no connection to their grandparents' favorite sitcom. Mm-hmm. It made no sense whatsoever. But our two main runners up nominees, because this is actually a, a, a winner, there's a tie for a winner on this one. Uh, first off, we have Badlands 2005. Badlands 2005 isn't a particularly weird show in and of itself, it's a Mad Max riff. What's weird is the fact that it's directed by George Miller and stars Hugh Keysburn and like uses like the stunt crews that worked on Mad Max and is totally Mad Max and that's a different George Miller. <laughs> I will never get over this. That is weird. That would be like, hey, I'm going to do a television series about a boy that befriends a weird, old-looking alien, and they have like a weird shared relationship to each other, and the government's after the alien, oh, and, Mac- they fly Mac- in a, yeah. and they fly in a bicycle, and, this, and it's directed by Steven Spielberg. Not that one. A different Steven Spielberg. That's weird. Steven Spielberg didn't make Mac and Me. That was Stuart Raffle. Oh, sorry, but sorry, but it was the other kind of Stuart. The other Stuart, the other Stuart Raffle. Our next runner-up... I'm an ass. You are. Our next runner-up... <laughs> our next runner-up is a show that we just recently reviewed. It's Little Muppet Monsters. A Muppet show you haven't heard of. Which is weird enough. It's weird enough unto itself. It was a, a spin-off, I guess, of... Or I guess it just came along at the same time as Muppet Babies. Yeah, it was considered it was, part of a package deal. Yeah, it was packa- Muppet packaged Babies with Muppet followed Babies. By Muppet and Monsters. the premise was... Uh, it's strange even for the Muppets. I mean, the Muppets is kind of a strange show. We're gonna. It's about the backscene shenanigans at a variety show, but all the people are puppet people. Yeah, that's pretty weird. It's, it's a little odd. We take it for granted now because it was a hit and we like it, but you got to remember when it came out, that, must that was a, weird. It's been a tough sell at the time. Yeah. And so the idea is those Muppet performers all live in the same apartment building in the big city. And living in the basement of that apartment building where the Muppets live mm-hmm. are little kid monster Muppets Mm -hmm. who have somehow gained access thanks to like a magic bolt of lightning Mm -hmm. to a a TV broadcast washing machine tire thing made of junk. And they make their own TV shows and also they pirate TV shows that are written by the Muppets. In the 90s, I went, uh, when I was a teenager, my dad took me down to a little theater on Melrose uh, it's probably still there, mm-hmm. uh, where they did just sort of local theater and a lot of weird underground stuff. And the theater was literally underground. And we were attracted because we said in the ad, it said in the ads, before you go in, you can spin the giant Twinkie and maybe win a free shirt. It's like, what? 
we were, we were intrigued. <laughs> so we went down there. Indeed, they had set up this gigantic plywood Twinkie, and it was on a big wheel, and we spun, I want a free t-shirt. And we saw a play called Stumpy's Gang, and it was a spoof of children's shows. It was kind, okay. uh, kind of like shared a premise with Little Muppet Monsters. It was about a... Uh, a, a, a lonely weirdo who lived in the basement of like a chemical dump plant and had rescued some of their failed experiments. And they were like these kind of like horrendous vomiting mutant creatures, but he pretended they were like the hosts of his show. So here's my, and they were played by puppets. Yeah. Their names were like Stumpy and Gristle and they just barfed blood. And <laughs> and he was like such this like empty innocent. They didn't kind of recognize it. And it's filthy and horrible and slimy and really uncomfortable. I got that vibe from Little Muppet Monsters. <laughs> it's about these monsters who are living in the basement and all they have is like junk and garbage and like the cast offs of the Muppets yeah. to produce their own show. Uh, it's an odd premise, and it made me a little sick. It's also really an unclear mm. and unclean premise. Like, mm. just have them run like a UHF station. <laughs> yeah, just, I know the movie UHF it, hadn't been made yet, but the concept existed. Just have <laughs> them run a crappy hole-in-the-wall closed-circuit mm. TV station. That was a thing. Just have them make their own DIY shows. Mm. That could be the fun stuff for the kids. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> the simple premise is right there, you weirdos. We're moving on. So our, we couldn't decide. We ended up having a tie mm. for the weirdest series. One of which we've discussed before. One of which we have not. Mm. Let's talk about the one we discussed before. The Curious Creations of Christine McConnell. Now, once again, this was half a reality show and half a fictional show. The fictional show is about this um, uh, incredibly maternal, uh, you know, homemaker type who is also incredibly glamoury goth, uh, glamorously gothic. Yeah, she's got a Mar- Marilyn Munster kind of vibe to her. Yeah, uh, and she's got a house, uh, you know, on a hill with a bunch of creepy monsters that she lives with, and they get in extremely mild adventures. One time, there's a nosy neighbor. That's it. They threatened to kill him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really add up to much. Uh, But the other half of the show is watching Christine McConnell make her the the, the treats that made her famous. Which is, again, oh, we're going to make delicious peanut butter bones. And we're going to sculpt the peanut butter onto this pretzel stick. And then we're going to use a little spray thing and make it look like a real bone. And I'm like, cool. There is literally no way I will ever be able to make that. Or if I do, let's say I got you got all the stuff together. You got all of the sculpting tools and all the uh, little clay sculpting. She doesn't things tell and, you what you need. Yeah. She doesn't give you a list of ingredients. Let's say you have she all those tell things. You the tools. Even if you have those things, it would take you like eight hours mm-hmm. to hand sculpt each one of those bones to the point where you wouldn't want people to eat those at the party. Yeah, you just put them on display. Look, I sculpted those bones. Yeah, those are really good. Can I eat them? Christine, no. McCon- I have nothing but respect for Christine McConnell's obvious talent and skill and artistry, mm. but. This show completely misses the point of what a show like this is for. It's to teach you it's how to do show. stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like Julia Child wants you to make what she's making. And it's being she's presented. not just showing off. It's being presented as an instructional show. So, yeah. so get your bowl of isomalt and pour it over this Ouija board that you just hand drew yourself uh, using wait a little airbrush. Yeah, pull, pull way the it's fuck like, back. A, what's isomalt? B, yeah. How do I get good enough to paint a Ouija board? What the shit? <laughs> oh my god! Good enough to use as a Ouija board. Great. Now I don't want to eat it. Also, it looked bad. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, it looked fancy. It was a nice piece of art, but yeah, it wasn't yeah. tasty looking. All right, so we've already talked about that. That show yeah. is weird. The weirdest show, uh, uh, or equally weird, they're tied, but in a very different way, hmm. is the failed pilot for Heil Honey, I'm Home. I, I don't think I want to talk about this one too much, just because it's so regularly on lists like this. Yeah, we well, finally got around to Heil Honey, I'm Home. We'll run through it pretty I fast. I too soon. But, but yeah, the, the gag is this. Oh. It's a sitcom in which the protagonist is Hitler. But Hitler is... is played by an American actor. It's a British mm. sitcom. And it's played and like the, the Honeymooners. They just well, it's, have a, it's, it's more like uh, I Love Lucy, where yeah. uh, Hitler and Ava are essentially Ricky and Lucy. Yeah, they live in an apartment. But they also have some nosy, nosy Jewish neighbors. <sighs> Comedy ensues. Um, it's a show that sounds like the most offensive thing ever, well, and on some level it kind of is. It kind of is, but here's the odd thing about uh, Heil Honey, I'm Home. It actually has a little bit more nuance mm-hmm. than, than that premise would have you believe. I think it's actually using sitcom tropes and really broad humor to examine a lot of political failings in Europe in the 1930s. It's not yeah. just, tee isn't it funny that that's Hitler and that's an offensive joke? Mm-hmm. They're actually going a little bit, more, delving a little bit more into the nuances of history. Yeah, and they're talking and about the really ways kind that, of witty about yeah, it. Yeah, and they're talking about the ways in mm-hmm. which people sort of uh, overlooked things about Hitler and the way that, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really fucked up. <laughs> but the show knows it's fucked up. Yeah. But it's amazing to me that anyone thought this would work on primetime television. Well, and, I know it was a little came, different in England, but still. Out, if, if it came out in like the early 2000s on something like Adult Swim, you know, around the time of That's My Bush, then it might make a little bit more sense. Uh, I mean, it's still in play because it's a sitcom <laughs> about Hitler, but you know, you could understand if if it had sort of like the Seth MacFarlane's and the, the South Park's sort of swirling around in, in the, the zeitgeist yeah. to prop it up. But at the time when it came out in the late 80s, early 90s, it had nothing. You yeah. know, like it's just this weirdly uh, high concept just series. Got, just got dumped this, this into weird the middle cri- of the lineup. Criticism of 20th century history in sitcom form. Yeah, it's really odd. So bizarre. All right. Uh, so moving on, mm. we have our award for worst series. Mm. There were no shortage of these. <laughs> Although generally speaking, we had a pretty good year. I was looking over uh, the list of TV uh, TV shows that we reviewed. Uh, since our last award show, and I was mm. impressed by how many of them we actually dug in one level or another. Uh, a lot of the nominees are ones that we've already talked about, so we're going to breeze through them real fast. Deadly Class. It doesn't work. No. Premise is kind work. of fun, but it takes itself too seriously. It's the wrong kind of cynicism. It just becomes unpleasant. Mm. Uh, Little Muppet Monsters. Just a bungled fil- idea. Filthy and unpleasant. Yeah. yeah. The Star Lost. Great idea. Lousy execution. Just bad, bad writing, bad yeah. budget, bad yeah. design. For everything that worked about it, there were 20 things that mm. didn't. It's a damn shame, and I do hope they reboot it one day. Now, some shows that we haven't talked about yet. Exo Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. The the uh, the Iron Man who wore... Essentially, like, uh, if you've ever worked uh, in any place that serves soda, those big, like, CO2 canisters you hook up to a soda fountain. Yeah. Just these big metal tubes. Yeah. Imagine if Iron Man wore a bunch of those. Yeah, he's got like this inflatable... And moved about as well. He's got this inflatable suit mm. and like... Um, and yeah, it's one of the, it's, it's just like Iron Man, you know, he's in a... There's, there's a disaster, he can't use his body, he builds like a robot suit. A lot of people think this was a TV movie version of Iron Man, much like we had a TV movie version of Captain America and Doctor Strange. It's not, it's just basically a ripoff. Mm. Um, but it sucks. 
Yeah. Like, it's really bad. It takes forever to get going. And when it finally does, it's tedious. He just... The suit takes forever to get going. The suit lumbers around. The first time he uses it, it turns off, and he has to like convince a, like some random guy on a street in order to help get him up. Mm. So it's not a great hero. He doesn't even touch anybody. Everyone just sort of runs away from him like, oh, no, it's an Exo Man. Crap. And then we're done. <laughs> what a piece of crap. Like It's not a good show. No. All right. Not. I try to find the good in everything. I have trouble with Exo Man. Next up, a reboot of a failed TV series that also failed. The difference is... I don't even remember this show. Right? The original Kolchak the Night Stalker is one of the most influential failed TV shows of all time. That sounds like a weird thing to say, but as we've seen on Cancel Too Soon, it happens more than you'd think. Uh, Sometimes movies make a lasting impression. Kolchak the Night Stalker was a great show about a reporter who was not a typical heroic type, whose various uh, stories ended up almost always having something to do with the supernatural. But nobody believes him, and yet he still tries to write the truth. Great story. The reboot, Night Stalker, starring Stuart Townsend and Gabrielle Union, who was great in Flash Forward, and, and she's good in this, but she has nothing to work with, Boy, is it a boring chore. Like, they really, they they took the thing that made sense about it. It's about a reporter who is trying to write about supernatural stuff, even though people don't believe him, and the people who know the truth have a vested interest in keeping it a secret. Why? It's one of the reasons why Kolchak inspired the X-Files. In fact, uh, one of the producers of the X-Files made this one. Yeah. So you would think it would be good, right? Here's the thing. First episode. First off, it's shot like a generic, like, thriller, early 2000s. Everything's got to have, like, a tint to it. Uh, It looks very samey, and the actual story that they're telling is completely forgettable, and I've already forgotten it. Here's the big problem, and it happens right at the end of the first episode, where Gabrielle Union says, Hey, we we investigated this supernatural thing, but your article doesn't have mentioned any of the supernatural stuff. And rather than Kolchak saying, oh yeah, yeah, the, the editor spiked it and said we can only do the stuff we could prove, which would make sense, Kolchak says, people aren't ready for that yet. Like, then why do you do it? Yeah. What's the fucking point? The whole, why are we when, watching when, this show? When Darren McGavin was doing it back in the 70s, that, his whole shtick was that he was trying to get all that stuff published. Yeah, the whole thing is the people have a right to know. It's it's this sort of... And, and yeah, there's more nuance to this in real life, but these idea of the pure belief in the power and the freedom and importance of the press. That knowledge is inherently good. And that we should make our readers as educated as they possibly are in the actual goings of the world, even if the truth is painful or uncomfortable or scary. I don't always agree with Kolchak, but he has an ethos, and I respect that. This new Kolchak doesn't. Mm -hmm. This new Kolchak is just some guy. And yeah, he's wrapped up in some supernatural bullshit where, yeah, he's got this weird tattoo that maybe means he's a bad person or something. I don't give a shit. It's a bad reporter show and a generic supernatural show. Some of the plots don't even make like, sense. Oh no, it's, you uh... got my moldy chocolate and my moldy peanut butter. It's not Wait, good. It's, it tastes like crap. But the winner mm. of our pick for the worst series that we reviewed this year is a real heartbreaker for us because we love everyone involved. 
every single person who worked on this show uh, really believed in this show at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clearly, it, a lot of it, energy it, went into a it. A lot of uh, it was a, based on a good idea. The people who really wanted who wanted to make it really did want to make it. And from what you uh, hear about its making, uh, thanks to studio notes and a lot of tinkering and a lot of just uh, budget cuts and mm-hmm. weird scheduling stuff. Everything was just sort of broken down into the really kind of painful to watch show that we got. The Weird Al. It's show. the Weird Al show. Yeah. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic is is an idol of mine. Mine yeah, too. Yeah, I, I grew I was, up with his stuff. It's a, important. A lot of people our age did. A lot of people yeah. younger than us did. He is just sort of important to generations of comedians. And, and if you tell me today mm. that Weird Al Yankovic wants to host a kids show in the vein of Pee Wee's Playhouse. You tell me right now you're doing that. I'm like, that's a great idea. Yes. You tell me that in the 2000s. That's a great idea. You tell me that in the 80s. That's a great idea. You tell me that in the 90s. Apparently that one sucks. They did it. Yeah. It's shrill. Mm. It's unfocused. It's, it's slow moving. Yeah. The, the running gags don't work. The, 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 and this is a studio note, but like they had to incorporate a message in every episode, and they had no idea what to do with that. Mm. That's not what Weird Al does. Weird That's Al's, not his shit. He's an anarchist. He tries yeah. to, to tear down that kind Bailey of stuff. Billy Herman was an anarchist. His show didn't have meaningful, mm. like, didn't have to wrap every story around a moral. Weird Al shouldn't have had to do the same thing. He should have been allowed to make a funny show for kids. As long as it's not actively uneducational, it should have been fine. But instead, they tried to like really just suck all the air out of every single episode to the extent that I don't remember any funny jokes. There's there's one bit that that made me laugh that I still remember because it feels mm. like something from the state okay. uh, where it's a spoof commercial mm-hmm. where we, one of the running gags is Weird Al would just watch TV on his own show and that should play as a gag but it yeah. doesn't but yeah. I, rather than, uh, like I know you could watch other things right now so let's watch them together yeah. like it's a funny premise. Mm. And uh, it, it's a milk commercial during the whole got milk ad. So yeah. it, uh, we we see a kid uh, sitting at a table like doing her homework, and we hear uh, got milk. She looks up at the camera and she like holds up her glass of milk. Yep, kind of puts it back down again. <laughs> then another another kid comes in. He opens up the fridge. He gets out some milk and starts pouring him a glass. How about you? Got milk? Yeah, it's like he's pouring it now, and then like a bunch of guys in masks come in and start like taking their milk and pouring it on the floor. And the announcer says, "How about now? You got milk now?" Okay, I didn't. I forgot about that. That, that was funny. That part was really funny. That was, see, that feels like weird, actual Weird Al Yankovic humor. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, that's a yeah, real bummer. Yeah. We're not going to dwell. Dick Van Patten, Billy oh West, uh, a lot of really good Eddie musical Jesus guests. Played like, a guy who lived in the wall. Yeah. He never showed up on camera. That was Eddie Deason for fuck's sake. Stan fucking Freeberg and, and his son Donovan yeah. Freeberg. Were Terry Garr played yeah. herself. It's funny, funny stuff in it, funny people in it. Not funny. Not funny. Really hurts. So we're not going to dwell. It, it's a damn shame. We don't recommend the show. Nothing would make us happier than to say it was the best thing we reviewed. Mm. Uh, before we get to our picks for the very best series we did this season, we're going to talk about the Audience Award. This is the award that you voted for on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we asked you to pick your three favorite episodes of Canceled Too Soon. And uh, the nominees, it was pretty clear, actually. We had, we had like two runaway winners and a couple that came close. Uh, our number uh, five most uh, voted for episode, something that I'm actually surprised hasn't come up yet because we really, really liked it, Father of the Pride. 
<laughs> Father of the Pride took us off guard. We expected yeah. something really horrible, and yeah, the animation is bad. Uh, yeah, even, it's pretty weird. Even yeah. for the standards at the time, you know, it, had, it was CGI and, and it was you know, ugly CGI. And, just a, not yeah. a good character design. They had the dead yeah. eyes and the weird mouths, but uh, not very well rendered. It, even it was actually okay. like turned out to be a, a refreshingly peculiar show. It was a yeah. really strange idea, and it turned out to be pretty funny. Yeah, it's about uh, uh, the it's about Siegfried and Roy, and of course, rest in peace, Roy Horn, who literally just died a few days ago when we were recording this. Um, Secret and Roy, Vegas magicians who work a lot with big cats, and they have like a jungle, like zoo, mm. like near where they work, where their animals live when they're not performing. And so the idea is, we're talking. The protagonist of the show is the lead lion in the show, played by John Goodman, and he has a family, uh, a not like any sitcom family, family. Yeah. exactly. Uh, Carl Reiner plays his annoying father-in-law, that kind of thing. Um, the lion stuff ranges from eh, any sitcom to genuinely quite funny. It's usually funny when they actually play with the fact that they're animals. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one episode where, like, they're they're having trouble controlling that they want to eat their herbivore friends. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. But the real funny thing about it is Siegfried and Roy themselves, who play these lovable goofball versions of themselves, who are completely out of touch and do everything that they do in as wild and over the top and sequined and theatrical a way as all of their shows. Mm. They're fucking hilarious. <laughs> and in fact, I, I, I can this list the nominating like the, the actors who play Siegfried and Roy for best lead actor because they're so damn funny. Um, so, again, the animation isn't good but the show is surprisingly funny. I'm glad you picked that show. Uh, we had a tie uh, for number three slash four. Uh, it was Tremors the Series. <laughs> which really warms my heart that everyone else likes Tremors the Series. Uh, and also our episode with Video Drew about Mulholland Drive. Which was a, it was a fun one, because there's so much to delve into. Oh, yeah. And, and you can debate and disseminate yeah. the works of David Lynch for forever. And, and Video Drew is such a great guest. She's, you know? she's really wonderful. She's really intelligent. She has such interesting insights and observations. And just her personality is so damn great. I love her so much. So <laughs> it was a real, real treat to have her on. It was a real treat to really take David Lynch seriously in a way that I think a lot of other shows don't necessarily do. I think sometimes they're trying to like decode the plotting. And I'm like, no, we're not mm. just talking about that. We're talking about what it means. So that was a real treat. Uh, our number two, and it was real close. It was like one vote mm. between our one and two. But our number two was Tuca and Birdie. <laughs> which it's, is... Because we were just over the moon about this It's show, such a yeah. good show. It's such a wonderful program. It's really funny. It's really touching and sweet and sad and honest. God, it's good. But our number one... John claude Van Johnson. <laughs> it's a show that, uh, again... We've talked about it. We've talked yeah. about it a lot. It's another one that took us by surprise. We were hoping it would be fun. We didn't expect it to be legitimately great. And we've heard from a lot of people who said, I didn't watch it when it came out because it looked terrible. But after mm. listening to your show, I watched it and it was great. Actually got people to watch yeah. the show. Um, what I think is interesting about the uh, Runaway winners, and a lot of other shows got, got nominations. I think most shows got at least one. Um... But what I think is interesting about these top five is they're all shows we really liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you like it when we like the show, which is nice. <laughs> which, unfortunately, we don't know that until yeah, we watch we, it. We can't control that, unfortunately. And we've yeah. been taken off guard by shows like, yeah. like Jean-Claude Van Johnson, mm-hmm. like Father of the Pride. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, there's, like. sometimes there are shows everyone tells us we'll like and we think they suck. Mm-hmm. That sorry, happens. Sorry about that. we got to be honest. But yeah. um, um, it, it, 
it makes me feel good to to know that you enjoy it when we're happy. Because <laughs> sometimes it's very unpleasant <laughs> to do this job. <laughs> sometimes we watch some real bad shows. Oh, golly. Yes. But let's talk about the best. Mm-hmm. There was no shortage of really, really great shows this season. I really, really struggled with this. I really wanted to nominate Suburban Beat. <laughs> I really okay. wanted to nominate Hammer House of Horror mm-hmm. and Spectre. Uh, but actually, our awards for best series is has fewer uh, nominees than usual because we actually had two overlaps. Which means we also have a tie. And you're probably not going to be too surprised by what they are. You might be surprised by what the runners-up are. Because only one of them has been mentioned so far. Julie's Green Room. I love Julie. I said at the time when we reviewed Julie's Green Room that there was... I couldn't think of a reason why this can't continue to be a show on public television for mm. 20 years. Like Sesame Street uh, yeah. or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's just that got that kind of lasting appeal. You'll mm. never run out of guests and material. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, Julie Andrews herself, She's she was in the show, but she would always step out in the show. She clearly wasn't mm-hmm. uh, as active a participant as maybe you might want in a show like this. She passed it off to her co-stars a lot. Uh, I don't care. I want. You know, it's okay for her to just in- introduce it, and mm-hmm. she's also eighty-three years old. If it lasts for a hundred, you know, twenty years, she's probably not going to be introducing it when she's one hundred and three. No, no, you can you can but, introduce a younger Julie. She has a granddaughter or someone, or just like, yeah. name at the Julie Andrews Theater and just have yeah. her, have it be her legacy. Have a big portrait of her yeah. on the wall. And now Adina Menzel hosts it for a few seasons. Why not? Whatever. Yeah. yeah, and and all and all of the the greenies, as they call yeah. them, the kids could stay the same, and they just yeah. continue. Or you can switch them out every once in a while if you feel like it. you want to you want to have yeah, new yeah. perspectives being visited um you're right it's a really really sweet show it's a well put together show we are not the target demo but we're also people who can appreciate all the good it was doing and just how like impressively progressive it was and mm-hmm. how it really had an honest and decent message which was the arts mm-hmm. are great and you should learn about them and you should, whether or not you make them your career, you should appreciate and respect what goes into them because everyone mm. lives off of art. Everyone enjoys yeah. art. So, damn good. Um, our next runner-up is a show that another one I'm surprised hasn't been mentioned yet. Uh, American Gothic, but not that one. Uh, American Gothic from, was it 2016? 2016. 2016, yeah. The American Gothic show from 2016 where uh, Virginia Madsen uh, played the matriarch of a very rich family. Yeah. There's a lot of those kinds of shows. It's actually quite uh, a bit like Pasadena, but it's a better version of Pasadena, and I liked Pasadena. I liked Pasadena, too. Uh, This is about uh, how a a family, uh, one of their... uh, they're, they're a builder family, like yeah, a they, part they of a building legacy, yeah, yeah. like yeah. a construction legacy. And one of their construction projects has re- recently broken open, and they found a piece of evidence that might indicate that one of them might be a serial killer from 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, maybe it's Jamie Sheridan, who's the patriarch of the family. Maybe it's uh, the 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 like, son they, who has a, a sociopathic child himself. Yeah. And it's like the, ki- the kid from the Dragon kid, Ball yeah. Z live action movie that nobody liked. It's about a bunch of actors in it. But like, here's the thing. It's a murder mystery soap opera about a rich affluent family. And I was riveted. We watch a lot of shows. And sometimes it's really hard for us to make the time for a longer show. It's one of the reasons why it took us forever to get to Flash Forward. We were trying, but there's a lot of TV there, and we have all this other stuff that we're doing. You might have noticed we put out a lot of podcasts. Um, American Gothic was so... Just the cast was so good, the writing was so sharp, and the mystery was so strong. I made the time. I couldn't put it down. 
I just kept watching it. It is so my jam. Mm. If you like stuff like Knives Out, if you like uh, soap operas, if you like uh, family dramas, if you like anything even remotely on the show's wavelength, check this one out. The season ends on a, like a, it's not a cliffhanger, but there's unresolved threads. Mm. Uh, it's basically a done in one, one season long uh, uh, murder mystery. Mm. It's really good. Seriously, it should not have been overlooked. It's really, really entertaining and very sharp. Check out American Gothic. I'm glad we got an opportunity to talk about it. Our two winners are perhaps a little obvious. Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Because <laughs> yeah, it really is that good. Mm. And Tuca and Birdie. Because it really is that because good. Because they they're both great shows. Mm. They're very different shows. One, actually, well, actually, no. Because, like, one, they both use comedy to offset genuine emotion. Yeah, yeah, you know, Jonathan Van Johnson is a bit more absurd, which is ironic because Tuca and Birdie has all of these bizarre surrealist images that are well, they, they just funny on the surface. Absurdism or surrealism or a, yeah. a sideways look at reality, not as a, a buffer between you and then its emotions, but as a way to enhance them. I guess my point is this: Jonathan Van Johnson's plot is absurd. Yeah, and the plot of Tuca and Birdie, yeah, and its incidental details can be silly, but the plot is very, very much about just real human connections. But they're both kind of profound. Mm. I'm using the word "profound" about a Jean Claude Van Damme TV show, where he plays a, a himself, vers- he plays himself. Who, himself who is also a spy and also occasionally a time traveler and also occasionally a guy who looks just like him. Profound. Mm. And Tuca and Birdie, also profound. Also, like, legitimately, heart-wrenchingly wonderful. These are great television series. Neither of them should have been canceled. Just 100% yeah, bullshit. <laughs> bullshit that these shows were canceled. And this is, I'm so glad they were able to give them their due and we were able to introduce some people to Jonathan Van Johnson. If you haven't seen Tuca and Birdie, see Tuca and Birdie. Dear God, it's good. No, we, we talked about almost every single show that we covered uh, in the last season. A uh, little shout out to the ones we didn't. We didn't talk about The Lone Gunman, not once. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't talk about Mockingbird Lane, uh, not oh, once. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about Swamp Thing, which we probably could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a one that's weird, though, because they're actually going to start showing it again. They didn't renew it. Mm. But because they can't go into production on in any new shows, just the CW is just going to show that and say, mm. oh, this was on streaming? Well, mm. now it's on the CW. Yeah. Okay, more people get a chance to see it. That's cool. Uh, I, I was actually really fond of Earth Star Voyager. I just Me didn't have, have a chance to talk about it I, in this episode. I almost voted for it for Best Pilot because this oh, two-part yeah. miniseries pilot for Earth Star Voyager mm. is actually a really rock-solid space adventure. You know, it's about teens in space, and that sounds insufferable. It's not. It's really good. Mm. So yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That yeah. one's really, really fun. Uh, Mockingbird Lane was really funny. I thought it was all right. I, I liked it more than you, but mm-hmm. I like it, it. Hit my buttons. I think there's okay. some really, really good stuff in it. Um, Hammer. I mentioned Hammer House of Horror briefly, but that's a really, really good show. Yeah. Droids was more entertaining than I think uh, like we'll give it credit for. But yeah, we I, we I, did I, most I, everything. Didn't I, we? I ended up liking Droids more than I expected to, mm-hmm. especially the, the the Great Heap. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Arc. I like the Great Heap arc. Oh, we didn't mention Harsh Realm because it's not very good. <laughs> uh, and we didn't mention the After, which was actually a pretty good pilot. It's a pilot. It for, reminded uh, me of Flash Forward in a lot of ways. Yeah, it yeah. is. It was one of Chris Carter's failed shows, and um, it was basically um, these people. Like the, the yeah, it's, the, the, the world is coming to an end, and they're yeah. trapped, and they have to figure out yeah. what's going on. And they're and they yeah. they may be in hell or something. Mm-hmm. Who the hell knows? Um, an okay setup if it had gotten to the good stuff as quickly as Flash Forward did might have been something mm-hmm. instead they spent half of it like 
locked in a parking garage yelling at each other. Big mistake. But good cast, decent setup. Um, but yeah, that was a season that canceled too soon. Um, really, really great seasons of television. Really, really bad seasons of television, a few of them. But overall, uh, a real, real treat. We will be back soon for a new episode of Cancel Too Soon. We're going to start off with, hey, you know that series Nancy Drew that everyone likes right now? There was one in the 90s nobody saw. So we're going to do that one. Because uh, who cares if you're watching it? Who cares if it's popular? <laughs> That's not our bag, baby. Yeah, everyone's always just like, I remember when we when I mentioned that we were doing this series, and people were like, oh, that sounds kind of fun, but uh, will anyone listen to that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is talking about the stuff that's popular. If you're looking for something that's unpopular, there's only one game in town. <laughs> that's why we're here. It's the only reason. Um, so we got that going for us. Um, if, over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, we will be announcing uh, probably by the end of the week who won uh, the chance to pick an episode of Cancel Too Soon. We'll also have a poll coming up where you can pick uh, an upcoming episode of Cancel Too Soon, probably the one right after Nancy Drew. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we have a ton more stuff over at our Patreon page. We got Not on Disney Plus. We're about to do uh, an episode about uh, the supernatural Disney film Child of Glass, which is not on Disney Plus for some reason. Uh, we've got uh, All Our Yesterdays. We review every episode of Star Trek. We've got Auto Gas, we review every episode of Firefly, we've got commentary tracks, we've got Oscar shows, a ton of stuff. I am so tired, this episode's really long. <laughs> well, let's just sign out. Thank you for listening. Thank yeah. you for another wonderful year of Cancel Too Soon. It's uh, been great. It's, Especially if you're a Patreon, we couldn't no, do it without you, but if you listen at all, that means the world to us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We, we've been uh, covering that Firefly, just like you asked, yeah. and uh, we're up to episode 9 or 10 at this point. Yeah, we're getting uh, up there, yeah. Well, so we're, we're kind of coming to an end on Firefly. Yeah, we're, so we're, that's, we're more than halfway there. Maybe Firefly will be eligible for next year's Soonies. Yeah. But we're going to announce uh, uh, our next Patreon goal, and we're going to make a few changes to the Patreon page in the next coming days. Uh, they just seem like right to wait for this episode mm-hmm. to do that. So, um, yeah, ton of stuff coming. Thank you so much. Follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And that's a wrap. We'll actually see you next season. <laughs>